people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. I'm not the first guy who fell in love with a girl he met in a restaurant who then turned out to be the daughter of a kidnapped scientist only to lose her to a childhood lover who she'd last seen on a deserted island and who turned out 15 years later to be the leader of the French underground. I know it. It all sounds like some bad movie. Got a girl named Daisy. She almost drove me crazy. Got a girl named Daisy. She almost drove me crazy. She brought me to the east. She brought me to the west. But she's the girl that Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Chris Dashew. I have one question and one question only for the two of you. How silly can you get? Also back in the booth is Mr. Mark Begley. This is not Mel Torme. Yes, the boys from from the Files of Police Squad and Color, our limited series about Police Squad and the Naked Gun films, we're all back and talking about something we didn't discuss on that podcast. We're talking about Zucker Abrams Zucker's Top Secret, released in 1984. The movie is a send-up of both Elvis movies and WW2 espionage films. It's a very odd duck that stars Val Kilmer as Nick Rivers, a teen idol who has made a name for himself with a series of songs about surfing and skeet shooting. He goes behind the Iron Curtain to East Germany, where things haven't changed much since World War II, especially since it's Nazis in charge of everything, rather than the Communist Party. He becomes embroiled in intrigue, though Nick Rivers sticks his neck out for nobody until he meets the gorgeous Hilary Flamand and her band of freedom fighters. We will be spoiling this film as we go along, so if you haven't seen Top Secret, just turn off the podcast and come back after you have. We will still be here. So, Chris, I think this was the first time watched for you, so I'm very, very curious what you thought about Top Secret. It was. It was, it was a first-time watch, which is, again... I kind of feel like I've watched all these other movies now without the Rosetta Stone, as it were, for how to understand what they've been trying to do this whole time. This movie is in a lot of ways, it's the best of everything we've seen. This is what it feels like. You know, that was kind of surprising when I got to the end of the movie and I was like, wow, this is kind of almost as much of a peak as Airplane was for me the first time I watched it. And I'm really excited to rewatch it for a second time. And then I haven't watched it for a third time yet, but the second time I watched it, I picked up on a lot more stuff than I did the first time, which is a positive for these kinds of movies, these ZAZ movies. But no, I had never seen this before. 
But if you've listened to the Police Squad show over on Weirding Way Media, you would know that I am a huge fan of Naked Gun and Airplane. So I'm more surprised that I had never seen this more than anything else because I didn't have an entry point because Elvis movies are not something I'm really still, even after having watched a whole month worth, I'm still not super acquainted with them. And World War II spy movies, I'm not a huge war movie guy either. So this movie would not have been scratching either of those itches for me, at least from the parody standpoint, at least the parody subject matter. But everything else is obviously right within my wheelhouse. So I enjoyed watching it the two times I watched it. And I'm more disappointed in myself it took this long because, again, it's just one of these movies that it feels exactly like everything else I watched with you guys over on the police squad show, but in a lot of ways better. And Mark, what's your history with this movie? I know I watched it back in the eighties, probably on video. I don't think I saw it in the theater. I had quite a few high school friends that were a couple of years younger than me, and they were big fans of stupid comedy movies, which I would hesitantly put this under just because some of the jokes are groaners or dad jokes and things like that. I don't think it's not stupid like like date movie or epic movie stupid, but there are still those kinds of sight gags and puns that make you groan while you're laughing. I know I saw it quite a few times back then, and I probably haven't seen it, I would say, in at least 30 years. And so I was Curious. I've been meaning to watch it. The Red Letter Media guys did a review of it, I think. It's a couple of years ago now. And when they did that review, I was like, oh yeah, I should really go back and watch this. And it had been available on streaming for most of that time. And I just never did. And I kept telling my daughter, oh yeah, we should watch this. We should watch this. And just didn't get around to it until we decided to do this episode. And I think like Chris, I'm happy to say that it's up there. I still think I like Airplane more, but it's definitely up there among their work for me. It probably second to Airplane. I would probably do the same. I would probably say, and then this might tie with Fistful of Yen. I mean, obviously Fistful of Yen is pretty short compared to this, but I know that I watch this a ton when I was younger, this was one of those that whenever it showed on cable, it felt like I was there watching it. So even if I didn't get a lot of the jokes, even if I didn't know a lot of the tropes that it was playing with, I mean, I was aware at that point of Blue Lagoon, which plays a major part in this movie, though I have yet to see the Blue Lagoon. I think my, my little mind couldn't have handled that when it was out originally, and that it just wasn't one of those that they showed as much as top secret on cable but man oh man i love revisiting this movie and this is one where i will actually it's been a lot sooner than 30 years since i've seen it i probably watch it maybe every 10 years if not every five and it's one of those like if it's on cable which is kind of rare these days i will definitely throw it on though sometimes i mix certain scenes i think in the prison i mix up some scenes with things from johnny dangerously because that was another one that just played on tv a lot when i was younger so i think some of the stuff when he's originally in flugendorf prison or later yeah i think it's the that section of the movie is where i mix up a couple jokes with johnny dangerously but 
I mean, this is, for me, very, very solid. Really like this movie, even if there are a couple jokes that I don't 100% understand, and I was hoping maybe you guys could help me out with those as we go along here. I don't know if I'll be able to help because I saw those in your notes and I was like, yeah, I don't get them. I don't get it. Some of them feel a lot like the jokes from Airplane where it's like, you know, this may be played for somebody else, but it's not us. Not us in this day and age. It's like that. It's like an airplane where she's like, he never has another cup of coffee. Like, guys, like that. Yeah, like that. That's just an oddly specific joke that's not going to work past, you know, this year. But you got to have them in there. I started a watch of TJ Hooker. I've never seen TJ Hooker, not one episode. And I watched the pilot the other night. And that lady's in there. So as soon as I see her, I'm just like, he never takes a second cup of coffee. (laughs) It's not even cultural references for me. And I'll just point one out here that you mentioned in your notes, Mike, the sneezing with the deja vu character. And I mean, I get it. He's like telling Nick Rivers to act mature and about things. And then he sneezes in his hand and sees it and freaks out. But it's like, why a sneeze? Why, like, why is it boogers that are freaking him out? Thank you. <laughs> I was beyond, you know how many times I rewound my movie at that part to figure out if I had missed something in the scene before even? I was so confused. Something that you would be afraid of if you were a tiny little child? I don't know. I've never been afraid of my own snot. I have to say, though, we're doing better. We're already doing better than I tried to listen to a minute-by-minute podcast about Top Secret. I made it through three episodes before I was just like, fuck this. So three minutes into the movie, and they already lost me. Because even in this very first sequence with Omar Sharif fighting the Nazis on the train, one of the guys didn't realize how many Nazis there were on the train. And just like, oh, wait, was that? Did that guy that he threw off, did he show up on the other side? And I'm like, oh my God, guys, one's got a helmet, the other one doesn't. Why would he show up over, like, this, yeah, I was so frustrated. <laughs> oh, that's a great that. stunt, by the way. That that sort of tuned me into, oh yeah, this is more of a real movie than Airplane, even. And I would go so far as to say that this is more of a movie than any of the naked guns as well, even though that kind of, you know, shuffled off the silliness or the, the lack of plot in police squad itself, where the naked gun movies were mainly plot, but this has got a lot going on. There's a lot of story in this. There is still that thing of a joke every minute. And like you, Chris, when I watched it, I watched it yesterday and I watched it today and realized while I was watching it today, oh, I missed that yesterday. And I didn't have my phone on. I didn't have my computer on. I was I was watching the movie, but just looking away or blinking, I missed like at least four or five jokes. It just happened so fast. But yeah, there's there's so much story going on in this. And I think they hit that balance the best in this movie. I can't believe anybody thought a top secret minute by minute podcast would be something the world needed. That's just one of those ideas that's kind of, I think, hit podcasting pretty hard, you know, either minute by minute or some of them do three minutes or something like that. And it's a way to, you know, you've got what, 90 to 120 episodes right there for things. So 
and they're pretty short. They're only like 15 minutes long, or at least these guys' were. I think the Goodfellows ones might have been longer. I listened to a couple of them as well, but that was way back when we were first starting, I think, the the Police Squad show. I mean, you couldn't you couldn't pick better movies, though, with something like this, where there is at least a lot of things going on every minute. I mean, like you said, Mark, this this has that feel to it. I think in a lot of ways you said, you know, this is more of a movie. I think it's more of a movie to the benefit and the detriment of Top Secret. I think that the plot of the movie ends up kind of cutting into maybe telling more jokes. But again, that's perfectly okay because this is a narrative and it needs to have some semblance of a narrative structure and and a point A and a point B and a point C. You would think, I mean, maybe the later Naked Gun movies maybe take a little, a little bit more liberty with that than I think any of us would like to admit. But I, I like the plot of this movie and I like the idea. I think forcing World War II movies and beach blanket movies together is, it works well enough. I mean, it's a weird combo right off the bat. You've got that great cold open with Omar Sharif and then you go into skeet shoot boogie, you know, all the skeet shooting. And then and that's the other thing that I don't think I ever even thought about before when I watched this movie when I was younger is just how anachronistic it is. I think it's supposed to be current. They make so many references to current things. And I'm thinking, okay, so this is early 80s East Germany in another world. Because with the Nazis instead of the communists... Nick Rivers back in the U.S. being like the number one... Well, he's got the top three hits that are on the Billboard chart. And he's a total throwback. Yeah. Right. And that's the thing that throws me off is that he is still embodying that Elvis Presley persona. His music is all the skeet shooting stuff is is 60s Beach Boys, but just about everything else he performs are 50s style tunes. And he looks like Elvis and dances like Elvis. And when they go to that pizza house in the movie, everybody there is dressed in 50s garb. I kind of like it in the idea that this East Germany has never moved past. It's that like you think about the Soviet Union and, oh, they're so far behind, like they can't get blue jeans and these kind of things. So I kind of like it from that idea, though having Nick Rivers also be of the 1950s. Yeah, that's like plus with the sexy songs. And yet, you know, Hillary's talking about, oh, he was one of the lucky ones. He got out during the Carter years. He was just like, okay, yeah, this is 1984, but it does feel like 1955. I just assumed that it was a joke like the way an airplane gets a joke that they're in a normal terminal, but it's meant to be set in the 50s. Where you hear the propellers from the plane when they're inside of a, a jet. I looked at it more as just like suited the needs to have him fighting Nazis, even if it makes no sense. But I think not making any sense feeds into the tone of the movie for me. Like, I think it's, I personally find it very funny that it's East Germany, which is controlled by the Soviets, but they're Nazis, but it's also the eighties, but he's Elvis style character who totally wouldn't work in the eighties. Like, I think that works only because I've seen airplane. I feel like if you watch this first, having never seen airplane, you'd be like, what the fuck is this? Because again, like airplane has that same weird pairing of the, the time periods and unintentionally it might seem the way they talk about it in the commentary for airplane, but 
it still is there and it's here, but it's here intentionally. An airplane, it could be theoretically unintentional because, again, they kind of say, well, we didn't really care and can't really notice. But here it's clear as crystal. And I appreciate it. I think it just adds to the weird tone of the movie. That's another thing that I find different about this one is that it's more Looney Tunish. There's a lot more of that surreal cartoon humor in this one. Al Kilmer makes the Roadrunner beat. Uh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> literally, literally loon me. Yeah, tunes. but one of the big jokes, and we've talked about it off podcast before, is that porcelain, the ceramic guard. That's like, to me, that's cartoon. Or at the beginning, that great stunt with the bridge, him crashing through that Nazi, crashing through that bridge unharmed. The, another cartoony one is the train where the train is not moving and the things are moving past it and the guy is chasing after the tree. Like, that's straight out of Looney Tunes. Come on. The cow even being, you know, once they go to a wide shot, it's a real cow. Stuff like that. It, it, and it it really works well in this movie. And it seems like that's not something that they continued with much longer, but it, it marks sort of that clear difference between airplane police squad and even naked gun where this one they just kind of went wild this also feels like the last time they were really beholden to playing with tropes of stuff like we talked in you know airplane obviously was based on zero hour and you're just kind of fashioning this story around zero hour and basing so much on it when we talked about police squad we talked about how so much was based on m squad and other TV detective shows, and they really, really held to that. In this one, they're kind of holding to some of the Elvis stuff, a lot of the World War II tropes, you know, some of these things of like, okay, you know, here's the little model, and, you know, you go down this path, and then we're going to turn off the power here. I mean, that is like, you know, forced time from Navarone type of stuff. We've seen that so many times. When it comes to Naked Gun, it feels like they were so lightly touching those police tropes like there's nothing with any of the naked guns where you're just like oh this is this entire story like this is lethal weapon but we're redoing it and i think we talked on one of the last episodes about die hard like they never did a direct die hard parody type of thing where that would have been so easy to hang all of these jokes on there and be like oh see how hans gruber is you know now this type of person and here's al powell and he's this type of person i mean i think they they did some of that in loaded weapon if memory serves but there's not that that uh holding on to these other movies or shows that we've seen but i think this one is still has a grasp on it but they they lose it with the next stuff they lose it with the naked gun i'd be inclined to agree with you you know i think obviously the way this movie works and the jokes that it's telling are Again, it feels like a lot more non-sequiturs. Nick, I've tried everything. The embassy, the German government, consulate. I even talked to the UN ambassador. It's no use. I just can't bring my wife to orgasm. You know, in a way that I appreciate it even more than I appreciate them really, like you said, sticking to the police stuff with Naked Gun. Like, in the show, not the movies so much, but the show, I think, really hewed close to the original source material, but... I guess it's because they're mashing two things together that they don't really have to necessarily be all one way or the other. But again, like the combination is so strange 
that it allows them to get away with all kinds of jokes that they wouldn't if they were just like, it's just a cop thing or it's just a, you know, fugitive ripoff or, or mafia movies. Like this is kind of like, ultimately it ends up being whatever they want. And some of the best jokes in this movie have nothing to do with parodying anything else. Like Omar Sharif in a block of aluminum as a car. Yes, from that mysterious seventh episode of Police Squad. Yeah, and that kind of brings up the thing that we've hinted at is the reuse of jokes or and that specifically being something that obviously tickled them enough to where a couple years later they're bringing it back for this. And it, it works here just fine. It works that setup. I think it actually works better in this movie than it does in that script where his... And you put this line down in your notes, you know, this isn't the Howard Johnson's. <laughs> and we never get to see Omar Sharif again, which I think is good because they took that joke too far in that script we read where it was like the whole iron block educational film. So now you're in a crushed car kind of thing. But they borrow from themselves from this movie with that old dance routine, which is great in this. And I mean, it was good in the Naked Gun series as well. That for some reason, I just really enjoyed this one more. Maybe it was particular moves that they did, but oh, man, God, the the face thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As I'm watching it, I'm thinking, man, this is tough stuff. Not only remembering your lines, but then performing this a along with good number of other people doing the same moves, and they both do it. It appears that they're doing it effortlessly. God knows how many takes they had to do. But I mean, it's Val Kilmer, let's just say right now, for a first time role, he just can, he goes all out in this thing. There's no way you would think this was a first time role, period. Period. The singing, the dancing, the stunts. I mean, he doesn't do the big stunts, but he does just the moves, that whole deal with the rugs. He does some flips. He goes up the wall with some help from wires. But, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on. Even that walking off the table onto a chair and tipping it over. I mean, if I did that, I'd break my neck. But, man, I, I'm just, just I'm thoroughly impressed with his performance in this. As goofy a movie as this is and as over, a to over the top a movie as this is, few actors get to make as, as an impression with the first role as Val Kilmer really did for me in this movie. If I had seen this movie when it came out, I would have been thoroughly impressed by Val Kilmer's performance, kind of evoking, not imitating, but evoking Elvis with that kind of constant shit-eating grin and the, you know, the con and also just like uh, amounts of swagger in again, like in a way that he feels in control of the situation, but he's not a dope like Frank Drebin is. He's kind of a dope. He's like halfway a dope. And the way Frank Drebin's a total dope. The one moment that I want to point to, I mean, yeah, the dancing, the singing, all that, the gymnastics that he's doing, the backwards acting that he does. Oh, my God. And I love on the, the DVD, you can watch the scene forwards and you get to see how they had to act. The thing that gets me is how he studied himself because they, they said that he you know, had a recording of the whole scene and he studied himself and came back and did it better. He was able to know how to move his hand to make it look like he's catching the book rather than throwing the book. And the way that he's able to throw the or catch the books, obviously catch the book and then 
does like that little victory thing after he successfully does it and then he's doing it all backwards. I'm just like, this guy's fucking amazing. Yeah, that what an amazing first performance. He just blows the doors off with this. The thing that I will probably always remember about this movie is that scene because it goes on for so long and they pull out literally every single trick you could think of to show you. They give you a a fireman's pole, a catching and throwing of a book, smoke. I mean, like all kinds of things, just every single thing you can think of in a scene like this filmed forwards or done backwards, but filmed forwards, however you want to perceive it. And it's just like most of the time when they do it, it's like 10 seconds. It's not almost a minute and a half or whatever it is, because I can't even tell you how long the scene is, because it seems like it goes on for five minutes. Oh, and what a smart way that you use the camera movement, that you start in a tight shot and you come back to a wide shot. Really, it's, you know, obviously, it's the opposite, but just that they're using that to give you this different framing. And there's even jokes inside of this, like lesbian bars of North Carolina. The, the only book title that you can see in the whole shop, if you even notice it, you know, without the help of trivia on IMDb, because I probably wouldn't have noticed it. And it's a Swedish bookstore. Yeah, you know. Makes a lot of sense. sense. Yeah. Do you like Swedish films? I bet he just rehearsed this stuff in his New York apartment or whatever. You know, when they were over in England, wherever he was staying. Like, just practicing all this stuff in his flat the whole time they were filming. It's just effortless. Like I said earlier, performances, the stage performances, which I think could have probably only been one song but i'm not going to complain because the songs are actually pretty good in this and you mentioned chris the how silly can you get i actually really like that song but his physicality in this is amazing i don't know if i can think off the top of my head of another movie where i have seen him be that physical before I'm thinking of the big roles. He might have done stuff that I wasn't aware of, but he was one of those people that was, you know, somebody you wanted to watch for so many years. And then he eventually just started making some really shitty movies. He's got a ton of shitty movies in his um, uh, filmography, but he's got a lot of diamonds in the rough as well. I mean, one of the ones, The Sultan Sea, I think was amazing. And I'm a big fan of the David Mamet film Spartan and that he just does a fantastic job. But then he was also doing, I mean, he was trying to do the stuff with like the saint that I just don't think worked at all. I really wish that it worked better and had given him a character that he could have been for many, many films. Jesus Christ. I just remembered his turn in tombstone. He's fucking amazing in that too. I'll be your Huckleberry. Oh my God. He's so good. He's, I mean, he's one of the best parts of that goddamn movie in a movie full of amazing in a movie with, with Kurt Russell and Bill Paxton, Val Kilmer's one of the best parts. Shocking, said no one. Powers Booth. Well, bye. People are probably going, haven't you seen Top Gun? And my answer is no. So if he was really physical on that, which I can understand that being the case, bum, 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 bum. Um, I haven't seen it. So <laughs> was that a homoerotic joke, sir? No. Which part? <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> they make. They made it for you. In oh that yeah. Movie. Well, I you didn't. I was kind of. I was. I was kind of surprised. Mike didn't mention Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Oh my god. I mean, I think that's really one of the last great performances that he did. Though I'm trying to remember when he was fantastic in Bad Lieutenant Protocol's New Orleans. He was just so good in that. And you know, again, tiny role, 
but he just made the most of it. Have you guys seen the documentary Val? I haven't watched it yet. We watched the trailer actually the other night. My wife played it. She was scrolling through Prime and I don't know if I can do it. I don't really have a real big connection with him as an actor, but it just looks kind of depressing. I like that documentary a lot. And you get to see, especially in those early days, when I talked with to John Grise a few months ago for the Real Genius episode, he was talking about how a lot of these videos of Val being these, like he was basically doing audition tapes and sending them to directors. He was very forward about stuff, which, you know, for better or for worse, I thought it was pretty cool. And it was Grise that was doing a lot of the camera work on those videos. And they would just, he was always, Val Kilmer was always with a video camera all the time. So like to see some of these images of him when he's such a young man and, and doing all of these roles and including, yeah, Top Gun and some of the ones like The Doors and things that are going to make him more famous. But yeah, it, w- it was a really solid doc. And it's unfortunate, really. I mean, you know, his his health issues kind of end up taking over a lot of his recent notoriety. I mean, even to the point where the, I mean, the documentary, I'm not sure the documentary would exist the way that it does if not for him getting throat cancer. The things that I've seen him in, I'm not surprised neither one of y'all mentioned it, but it was a big part for me growing up was he was Batman. And you know what? Like, I know that there are plenty of bones to be picked with those bat with those Batman and movies, the Schumacher ones and where the series went after Michael Keaton left. But that Val Kilmer Batman movie is not terrible. And Val Kilmer as Batman is better than I think most people remember and or give him credit for. It's a little it's a little reserved, maybe even more so than Michael Keaton does. I mean, Keaton has those moments where he bursts through, but he's pretty stoic. I mean, Val Kilmer in as Batman is pretty stoic, but I think it kind of works in a world where you've got Jim Carrey playing the Riddler. <laughs> so <laughs> not everything has to be crazy and over the top. You maybe need the straight man to be Batman for once, but that's, you know, another thing that like he played Batman and didn't stink up the screen as Batman, which is apparently something we took for granted at the time. So I remember enjoying that one. I think everybody in this film gives a solid performance. There's nobody in here where I'm just like, oh, gosh, yeah, that's rough. I mean, even down to the smallest rules, down to every single French freedom fighter that they have. I, I love all those guys. And I love, of course, the names and all these things. And that's the thing with this movie kind of again comparing against naked gun and police squad here we have a lot of the word play going on and especially if you know yiddish you're going to be getting a lot out of this movie i mean i i don't know that much yiddish but i do know get cracking off and yom which means basically go shit and jump in a river and when the waiter walks up and says that to nick and hillary and says that to them like he's taking their order i mean i'd bust out laughing every single time and then like some of the other ones that every once in a while i'll be like oh okay oh that's that's this that's this so it's like they've got you know we talk about the the foreground background jokes i mean they've got also kind of weaving in there some of these language jokes that they just will drop you know later on with uh the naked gun stuff where you don't get all that play on on words as much as we saw in you know the previous stuff like police squad like airplane yeah, I saw all those uh, Yiddish explanations in the trivia, and I was like, "Man, I wish I, I wish I was getting that when I was watching the movie." It's one of those things where, like in 
airplane where they've got the real people from the LAX terminal doing the PA stuff. It's like, it's for, it's a joke for a select few, although a bigger audience, I think wouldn't know Yiddish than would know who those people were at the LAX terminal. It almost makes me kind of sad. Some of the stuff that I don't get to catch unless I have, you know, something in front of me telling me what it is. Not everything is Ian McNeese smashing Omar Sharif in the face with a fake whipped cream can or it exploding in his face, which I think is, again, one of the best scenes. It's one of the best scenes in this movie. And Omar Sharif being the one on the receiving end of it is a stroke of genius. I don't know how many times I will say souvenirs, novelties, party tricks. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I love Ian McNeese. He is such... From Baron Harkonnen to uh, to the straight man. Oh, speaking of Jim Carrey, he he's actually really funny in Ace Ventura when nature calls because he plays the straight man to Ace Ventura throughout the movie, and he is he plays harried up against Jim Carrey really well, which is the right energy to have against a ball of energy like Jim Carrey. But he's really funny here for the like he makes the most of the two scenes that he's in. Let's just put it that way. I love Billy Mitchell, who plays Martin as manager. And even though he gives us, you guys know that I'm not a big fan of like the sidelong glance kind of thing. They do it perfectly in this one when they, he and Hillary both say, oh, we're, it's like we're in some sort of bad movie and they look at us in the audience. But Martin breaks that wall when it's the guy chasing after the moving tree. Does he flub a line during that scene? I think he does. I'm like, that's a really weird line reading he's giving. Like he didn't finish his sentence, but it doesn't, it didn't seem to make sense as far as the context. Right. How he just trails off. Yeah. Yeah. He wouldn't, wouldn't say anything like that. And I'm like, that was weird. That's another one of those weird things. I'm like, did I miss this joke? Or is that, was that a flubbed line? I'm sorry. He's just a little tired from the trip. Normally wouldn't say Correct me if I'm wrong, do they not reuse the gag that they use with Billy Mitchell's character at dinner where he's doing the reading the note? Oh, I you love that. You think Val Kilmer is reading the note, but he, he's actually, don't they do that in Naked Gun? I don't remember, but yeah, with I love TV that. It's show, like, this like doesn't do anything. There's something similar. <laughs> something yeah, similar. there's something similar. Okay, I'm just making sure. either Naked Gun or Police Squad, I believe, yeah. Yeah, you're probably okay. right. Because, I mean, how many times did Priscilla Presley leave him? You know, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure she left notes every single time. It reminded me of the gag from Spaceballs. Rick Moranis and George Weiner, I think is his name. They go up to Michael Winslow and he's, you know, he's talking into the thing and then they put it down and he's still doing that. That's what it reminded me of. But I was like, that's a Mel Brooks thing. But I feel like there was, yeah, because. Frank Drebin read those notes from Jane a lot. I know this. He did it at least twice. At least. At least twice. Mostly new jokes, sort of. (laughs) I will say, I think the most inspired gag in the movie may be a man being sodomized by a bull and then not being able to walk afterwards, which will never not be funny. Oh my God, I love it. There's some butt jokes in here. There's some... There's that and the That's anal the, invader. The movie's building to that joke is what it feels like. It feels like it's building to the moment where they can put the Jaws theme over a bull sticking is sticking where the sun don't shine. It feels like that's the moment the movie's building to. 
the whole thing with Nigel being rescued by his Russian comrades and that whole thing when Hillary's like, oh, you must have hated every minute of it. Look on his face. <laughs> must have been awful. <laughs> yes. And I love her going down under his grass skirt and coming back up with the measuring tape. Ten inches. You know, there was another kind of repeat gag in that train sequence when with the painting when Val Kilmer is looking out the window and it reminds me of the airplane bit with that whole in the uh, psychiatric ward when what's his nuts is painting the picture and there's a Robert Hayes the soldier yeah. is actually there with his leg over his, his leg head over and the baby in his <laughs> hey how about give me a break you got it striker I was expecting it to be his thumb because of the way that he used his thumb. Yeah, that's how I remembered it. I'm like, oh, no, it's the blurry trees that are going by. (laughs) And I think the thumb has been done before. Yeah, I'm sure you're right. (laughs) This movie, it just has like kind of a limited number of scenes. I was noticing that the last time I watched it, that they're, you know, they, they stick to a couple spots pretty good, just a few setups. But they're all very effective. Like all of the stuff at the the restaurant, the hotel restaurant, like that whole sequence that gives us the introduction of Hillary, the whole thing you're talking about with, with Billy Mitchell, with the uh, the megaphone, it gives us the great joke of uh, get him needing a tie and jacket to come into the restaurant. And then you get to see him being measured in the back. And it's like he comes out with a whole new outfit. <laughs> it's not just the jacket. It's all completely tailored to fit. Um, you know, it gives us him doing the music performance. It gives us so many things and, and you know, showing him humiliating the, the Russian tenor kind of thing. I love all of the stuff that we're building to. And then they put that beautiful button up with the, your hog balls, sir, and <laughs> setting it on fire. <laughs> As someone who's been to Germany, I can say unequivocally, they eat a lot of pork and there ain't a whole lot of vegetables being served. That ain't potatoes. And potatoes, last time I checked, are not really a vegetable. I couldn't tell if that's what the joke was, but as someone who had been to Germany and like knew that that's the way it is, like I appreciated it, but man, what a way to end that scene. <laughs> what a way to end that scene. <laughs> Your oddballs. <laughs> that suit bit is so great because that's one of their rules, you know, where you've got the joke going in the background while they get to give the exposition in the foreground. And they do that a like two or three times in this movie where, okay, let's get the story out. But while that's going on, let's have something funny going on in the background to keep people engaged. And I appreciate that in an exposition scene. Like when they're eating the pizza. Oh, right. God, yeah. Right. Yeah. That whole pizza scene. <laughs> which is pretty, which is pretty great. The stretchy the fact, cheese. I mean, they get a lot of mileage out of it. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Or the uh, the people landing on the giant pigeon statue. <laughs> that takes a massive shit. <laughs> you just hear the pee. Like I was wearing yeah. headphones when I was watching <laughs> that. The pee noise was so loud. I was like, oh my God. This is the kind of stuff that I appreciate. This is the kind of comedy I appreciate where they just, they take the joke just a little too far. But like by taking it just a little too far, it does work. And they're doing a lot of setup and payoff, setup and payoff. Even when it comes to like the first time we see one of the Nazis, he drives up on a motorcycle and he basically ties his motorcycle to a hitching post. And then that comes back in a twist later on 
when they're escaping from the theater where Nick was singing and he shoes away all of the bicycles and they all like rear up like horses and take off without them. I love that. And we've got that other weird Western moment where they, where they fall in the water and they have a whole Western saloon scene. <laughs> That's another technical masterpiece. I oh love my that. God. That in the backwards scene, I just, it's amazing. Yeah. Like in yeah. this, like, you goofy, can watch nothing else from this movie. A movie, and you've got these two tech. It's more of that's why early on I said it feels like more of a movie, and it's not just that there's a lot of story in it. It's like they kind of went all out with technical stuff. The reverse thing, this underwater sequence. There's a great fade early on where two German soldiers come into frame their backs, and then it cuts to two people dancing in that in that ballroom and i'm like they don't do that kind of shit in their other movies they don't do that stuff in naked gun and that's only four years down the road it's really well directed i kind of wish there was more of that in later stuff some of the technical wizardry of filmmaking well take the joke and keep running with it because like the underwater scene comes from an idea that they expounded upon to the literal end end of the line where he leaves the saloon like it were a scene in a show like they go all the way with it and that's i don't know like you're completely right like when they do go all the way with it in naked gun it really works but by the third movie it's like wouldn't even care anymore we're gonna make specific jokes about again like i can't even remember a lot of the jokes from that third naked gun movie because they kind of aren't anything other than like a specific parody of a specific thing this is just kind of all over the place. Like, I don't think there was a World War II movie where they dressed up as cows. I always point out the whole thing about, you know, and Mark, you already talked about this, the whole contemporary angle versus the past kind of thing and how we'll mix and match eras of jokes and having like, you know, the Western stuff pretty, you know, broad there. There's a couple jokes that are very specific, some movie references, obviously Wizard of Oz, and I think they do that in almost everything. And I think that Wizard of Oz joke is actually a callback to A Fistful of Yen with our main character dressing up and looking exactly like Dorothy and all this kind of stuff. But anyway, I'm very curious, Chris, did you get the Pinto joke? Yeah. Okay, good. Oh, yeah, come on. I wasn't sure if that was still there in pop culture. This whole, what was it, unsafe at any speed, right? The whole Ralph Nader thing. Yeah, if he gets hit on the bumper, it explodes. Exactly. Okay, good. I was I was very curious if that was too specific to like five years too specific. prior. Yeah. <laughs> it is way too specific, but you know what? Here's, here's a joke that I didn't get until I watched the movie the second time. I didn't get the E.T. joke. Is that an E.T. joke? I, it's gotta be. It has know. to be. There's, I, I don't, don't know what else it could be. I just figured she was excited to see him. So her tits lit up. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, doesn't that happen? Put that on a shirt. You're excited to see me. Are your tits gonna light up? <laughs> doesn't that happen? That doesn't happen with you guys? I see that uh, all the time. <laughs> when I come home. Mark, do you live, do you live near a radioactive power plant by chance? <laughs> I assume it's an E.T. joke. It it glows the same way E.T.'s finger glows. The same color and that same kind of... The sound, too. Glowy yeah. hue. The sound yeah. is a little reminiscent of what happens Sci-fi. with his finger. The one joke 
I never got was I didn't realize they made a JFK assassination joke in the middle of this movie when Nigel says, my God, they're going to kill us all. And they said in the commentary, they're like, oh, yeah, of course, that's the senator or what was it? Like, Con- uh, the, the, Connolly? The, yeah, John Connolly. And it was just like, wow, that was <laughs> okay. <laughs> I wouldn't have gotten that in a million years. <laughs> like, Oddly specific references by our friends, the history lovers over there at CAZ. Apparently. Yeah, I don't know how many Davy Crockett things are in this movie. I mean, Davy Crockett's fucking all over Naked Gun, but I don't know if he's in here at all. I did appreciate that the I did appreciate that the East German anthem is I think it's like their high school anthem or something. <laughs> it's credited in the in the credits as like. Adapted from the East Waukesha High School, Wisconsin, and I was like, what the actual fuck are you guys on about? I didn't notice the Zucker's mom in this movie. I was a little disappointed to not see her show up because she showed up in all the Naked Gun movies. Oh, I wonder if they just couldn't fly her over to, to the UK. I want to say there's another Zucker in the cast, though. Beside them, they're East German guards. And I think the chef that's holding the chicken might be a Zucker as well. But, and then there are the guards up in the, the turret of the cat, you know, the fortress or the prison that they storm. That's another weird gag. That whole thing with the grappling hook, when he throws it in the air the first time and they freak out. I'm like, what are they freaking out about? Oh, it's because it's going to come back and hit him on the head. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Some of the jokes are like the thing with the guy sneezing in his hands, like it's, same thing where it's like, is that all it is? Right. There's nothing else? Right. Like, yeah. Wow. That's what I, that's <laughs> how I, how to feel yeah, about that. Right. That's how I feel about the grappling hook one. Like that was it. The, okay. But that, that whole bit in the, in their hideout when they're getting taken over by the Germans with all the window, all the different things with the windows, you know, somebody's got a, somebody's got, they're all crashed out and Nigel's got to poke the one that isn't. Uh, deja vu can't I, I love break the, the uh, uh, windows. Yes, deja vu. When he looks at the hammer and then like looks back and like nods at the hammer. <laughs> the tic-tac-toe, the, you know, there's like every one of those people. The Albert Potatoes got a little gag because he's so short. That scene had me, had me rolling. That was another Wizard of Oz gag. Which, oh yeah, at the door. The, the, at the door. Where he's that's way totally up on the from door. Wizard of Oz, the, isn't yeah. It? Yeah, it totally is. Oh yeah. Yes. Oh, that's a horse yeah. of a different color. Because <laughs> again, they love their Wizard of Oz gags to the point where this movie ends with what? <laughs> Literally the last line of the movie. Uh, honestly, though, like, you know, of all the specific jokes in this movie, I was surprised that they end the movie with a specific joke, but it works. It really, really works. Because those kinds of jokes tend not to work. You know, that's almost what we bemoan uh, through most of the Naked Gun movies, at least the later two, is like you're doing specific things and they're just not that funny. And to do that, to have Scarecrow there, and a horrifying looking version of yes. Scarecrow, mind you. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of a Return to Oz type Scarecrow. I love it, though, that, that then that's it. And the fucking movie's over. I wish more movies did that these days. <laughs> but there is a there is a, a post-credit scene of Val Kilmer singing. Yes, we get more singing. Yes, with the fake Jordan Ayers. And some really great fake credits, too. Mike mentioned the names of the French resistance. And, and Chris, you mentioned not catching everything, and I mentioned it as well. That bit with Deja Vu, it's like, you know, it's one of those... I see it coming 
haven't we met before? But then today when I watch it and I notice that he looks away and looks back and does a double take, like he's like, like we, we just did this joke, but that little bit of him re-recognizing him, I guess, just had me rolling. I had to fucking pause the movie because I was afraid I was going to miss something else. I was laughing so hard. And then they put a pin in it at the end of the movie with deja vu. I'll never forget you. Yes. I like that. The one guy who's so ultra French, he's kind of like the spokesman for them. When a message comes in, he goes, a massage. Yeah, I was surprised they didn't make anything else out of that. Because I was like, wait, is there, they're going to do something with this, right? Because this is specific. They made a point to have him say it that way. Nope. Or when he says, Well, Monsieur Rivers, it seems that you have become, how do you say, indispensable? Indispensable. That's what I thought. And the little pigeon with his briefcase. Uh, that's the thing I didn't get for the longest time was latrine and how every time he comes in, he bursts into the room and like he's all bandaged up and falls down. So like he does that when they're at the hideout. He does that when they're at the restaurant with that pigeon you're talking about. And then he does it again at the very end when they have taken Hillary, when Nigel takes Hillary. And I love he like steps on the other guy in order to get into the scene that the framing of that, everything just works so well. You know, we're, we're talking about like specific kind of strange jokes that stick out. How about a publisher's clearinghouse <laughs> joke? That's a, that's a little dated. I mean, I know they still do the commercials, but who really even thinks it? But that was such a big deal. Like everybody thought they were going to become a millionaire because of that back then. That's a pretty big joke, even in Fletch. He does the whole Ed McMahon could be a winner. I mean, they do the same thing. It's like, oh my God, this is this probably was dated then. I love how he says he's going to put the guy on the Montgomery Ward's mailing list. Yeah, that's the other one that's really <laughs> dated. <laughs> and probably even back then, probably wouldn't have registered with a lot of people that were seeing it. If I think of, you know, I was 15, I would have been prime target audience for this movie back then. And I don't know that I would have really gotten that joke. Well, I know at 15 or whenever I saw this the first time, I sure did not know who Mel Torme was. It wasn't until Night Court came out that I knew who Mel Torme was. And this this may be why he's in that Naked Gun movie. I was I'm like, thinking, oh yeah. shit, what a long callback, man. <laughs> yeah, that's like, a, that's the longest of callbacks. He wrote why are you dissing me in your top secret movie? Shit, we upset Miltor May. We better give him a part in one of our next movies. It's kind of surprising he's not in it, given in Airplane they had Ethel Merman. It's not like they couldn't have gotten Miltor May. I don't know what Miltor May was up to in 84, but I feel like he could have popped down for a minute. Omar Sharif is doing like an actual role, but there's no cameos that I can think of as far as like, you know, even like I know Little Germany sitting over there. Like that guy is not like I've seen him in other things. He was in some of the Lindsay Anderson films. And so I'm like, oh, I recognize him. But I always, in my mind before, I also was Billy Barty. And I was like, oh, well, Billy Barty, that's a great cameo. But these days they would have Danny DeVito be that. I guess is the other the other cameo is Peter Cushing. You were going to say it. Cushing. Yeah, there Peter you Cushing. Go. Thank you. Thank you. I guess that's it. Whenever I see, whenever I watch one of the Hammer Frankenstein movies, because he always has a fucking magnifying glass up to his eye in those movies, which I'm sure is the gag. But now when I see that, just like, you know, you say when you watch Zero Hour or whatever, all you can do is fill in the gags. So whenever I watch one of those Hammer Frankenstein movies now, I even though I haven't seen it in decades, that's what I think of. 
is, oh, is he going to have a big old fucking eyeball when he moves that away? And in his glasses. I love the the big phone, how they make it look like the phone is in the foreground so much, but it's actually in the mid that's that, that's, <laughs> that's that movie stuff. That's one of the best gags in the movie. It just works so seamlessly well. And it's just so, it's so smart. And it could have been a throwaway, like scene. There's, there's no joke in that scene without the phone. The German translation, I think he says, C says something, I forget exactly what it is, but there's not a gag in that scene otherwise. So just having this gigantic bone. And that's the thing that I really feel like we miss in Naked Gun 2 and 3 is weird little throwaway gags that aren't building towards something. Because that that gag doesn't build on anything or build towards anything. It's just, it's there and there you go. I like those. I mean, again, I know that those are probably the hardest kind of jokes to land because they seemingly have to come out of necessity less intent. But whenever they land them, like the thing with the phone, you, you really just can't help but be like, man, that's so smart. Like, why did I wish I could come up with something like that myself where it's just like a throwaway gag. Talking about performances, all of the guys that plays play Nazis are freaking amazing. Dim. Dim is in this. I couldn't believe it. Does not look like him to me in this. I was just like, really? That's him? That's wow. Can't believe that's Warren Clark. My wife and I watched a British show, one of those cop procedurals they have over there, and he was in it. And I was like, wait a minute, because all I really know him from is a Clockwork Orange. And so when I look now, I've seen a bunch of newer pictures of him. So when he came on the screen, I was like, oh shit, that's dim. Klaus, one of the heavies towards the end when they are beating up Nick Rivers. The guy that I thought was George Wint was also in A Clockwork Orange. And I'm like, he looks very George Wint, yes. Is this not George Wint? I couldn't find him in the credits. I was like, oh no, Klaus is, is some British actor. Yeah, it's so interesting that they made this in England. And that, I mean, really, like 90% of this cast is, you know, either expats that were living uh, in England or British actors. And yeah, it was just wild to see all of these people michael and, go yeah michael yeah fucking would would play alfred for val kilmer and there you go a and the man in the white suit well eddie tago i love eddie tago he's chocolate moose and he's in i think with nail and i and then of course he's in raiders of the lost ark he's the guy going i can't find mr joe scotty i've looked everywhere he's got to be here somewhere look again I read on now, you know, of course, this is IMDb, but it said that during those laboratory scenes, the sound in the background is the sounds from Man in the White Suit, but I didn't hear any sound. I listened. I listened very closely. And at the very beginning, when they first cut to Professor Flamand, it sounded like it to me so much that I almost had it in my notes. And I was like, I can't be sure if that's really those Google gloves from Man in the White Suit. But now that you say that, I believe it. Okay. Uh, yeah. See, I was just, I didn't listen with headphones. So I'm like, I don't hear any sound in this scene at all. Very, very mixed down. Okay. I'll have to play it with headphones then because I love that fucking sound. <laughs> I was actually very surprised. Like I, I wrote in my notes that this movie has kind of a Casablanca ending and it doesn't really. It does not because Nick and, and Hillary get to go off together at the end. 
I guess it's just the whole waiting airplane type of thing was doing it. I was actually expecting more Casablanca nods and that I kept thinking, where have I seen this recently? And I think it was in the cheap detective, right? Isn't there a whole parody of, yeah. uh, okay. Yeah. Cause it's like all these Humphrey Bogart movies all pushed together. Right. Well, it's also that shot of the propeller of the planes, right? Like it kind of always evokes Casa. Blanca, at least for me, it does. So I was, I was like, well, at least they're nodding to it. I was expecting her to say something about a hill of beans. There's somebody to say something about a hill of beans, but no hill, no beans. Scarecrow instead, and they go to off together. And I used to think too that Nick would be more hesitant to help them out with their whole fight, and I kept thinking like, oh, well, that's like uh, again, like Rick from Casablanca, like oh, I stick my neck out for no one kind of thing. But he's really, he joins up with the, with the resistance pretty quickly. And I'm just, I'm laughing because I'm thinking of them looking up at the clock because there's a truck that's supposed to pick him up. And it's that amazing Hitler clock. (laughs) And then you get the giant watch. Weird hand-drawn Hitler. (laughs) Yes, yes. And I do have to say, every time I hang out with my friend Nick, I always have to ask him if his dad thought of his name while he was shaving. I will say, I think, you know, what you mentioned, Mark, the musical performances in the movie. I do think there are probably too too many as in the number two they probably could have done away with probably tutti fruity i just i don't know like i get it i get why it's there it makes sense in the scene but i don't know i feel like they needed to take a little bit leaner approach with some of the musical acts because there are jokes in some of them but some of them are just like a musical performance which again val kilmer is fantastic so at least there's that it's not Ryan Gosling and La La Land who can't sing. Val Kilmer can actually sing clearly, which is, you know, again, given what we know about Val Kilmer, it's probably because he was practicing in front of a mirror for hours on end singing to himself. Well, I have to say that's one thing about them making this a musical that is interesting to your point, Chris, is all of these songs are appropriate for the scenes. Like, oh, we want you to do a performance for us. Oh, you're at a concert oh, here's me singing the song that I made up when I was living at Macy's for the rest of my life kind of thing. They're all to that, even cutting a rug at the end, where it's just like, oh, I have to prove who I am. Here's this record player. I will sing to this. The thing that you could have done with a musical is just kind of like La La Land, which I hate, but it does that thing that so many musicals do where, you know, it's like, it's that old Eddie Murphy joke about the Elvis movies where the, he would just find any excuse to sing a song. Elvis wants some lemonade? Lemonade. <laughs> that cool, refreshing drink. They don't have that in this movie. And I think they actually could have done that maybe once. And just like all of a sudden the world turns up and becomes almost like an Austin Powers type of thing where everybody's singing 500 Days of Summer, everybody's singing, everybody's dancing, and then the song's over and they just go back to their normal thing. That could have actually justified one of those sidelong glances that I always put a pin in. And, and honestly, that's kind of more what I was driving at is it feels like it's less of a parody of Elvis movies and more. It's just a World War Two movie that happens to have an Elvis style character in it and the trappings that come along with that. But it's not a parody of those Elvis movies. And it, and it really had the opportunity to. And those are the things that you're talking about, Mike, where at the beginning of king creole where it's singing a song about crawfish god fuck off like no one come on man like where we're movie just started like give us a minute please no no 
There is none of that here. And those conventions could have really been played with. Because again, we know ZAZ can, you know, even separately they can, because Jim Abrahams would with Mafia, where he plays with the conventions of Mafia movies. But that's kind of my my only kind of gripe, real big gripe with the movie, is they should have done more of the parodying of the Elvis stuff in a in a more kind of direct way, as opposed to just, well, we just have music in the movie. That's kind of what it ends up feeling like. Because they, they really don't even parody Elvis as a person. And they could have. They could have leaned on all kinds of weird stuff. Other than the, how do you say, I only thing I know how to say is, is your daughter 18? Which, I mean, I get it. <laughs> That's a pretty good one. But I just wish there was more of that. Because, again, Elvis is such a big personality. There are plenty of things to poke. There are so many angles and dimensions to poke fun at with Elvis that... None of them are incorrect and they're all up for grabs because he was such a big personality. They didn't want to ruin their chance to work with Priscilla Presley in the future. So and look what, <laughs> ah, ha- and boy, look what is happened. Is that what it is? It's a life insurance <laughs> they plan. Got her yeah. three, they got her in three fucking movies. So They got her three paychecks that she I would not have had otherwise. I so. looked on the IMDb page to see if it was listed as comedy musical because it borders on having too many musical numbers in it. I think that, yeah, I think that bit where he is actually on stage performing for the, you know, what he's there to do could have been cut a little bit. We didn't need two songs there. Skeet Surfing is a comedy song. None of these other songs are comedy songs. I mean, Cutting the Rug, the lyrics, they're good. They're not funny, you know, and like, how silly can you get? That's a straight up pop song. Like these are not comedy songs. These are not like uh, Weird Al could write some really good lyrics. I've seen other films with like really good lyrics and that are funny, ridiculous, those kind of things. Maybe you're singing about like, yeah, to your point, Chris, I mean, I always bring up Dominic the Impotent Bull from Stay Away Joe as far as like one of the worst Elvis movie songs. Dominic, Dominic. Why are you stalling? Don't you hear love calling to you? Move, move, move your little foot do. You've got plenty of things that you could be singing about. You could be singing about springtime for Hitler in this movie. It would be very appropriate. There are plenty of things that have music, that the music is funny, speaks to the narrative, and isn't even like, again, like, doesn't even verge on parody something like flight of the concords has the music's funny it's not it is kind i mean again like it's kind of a parody but it's more a parody of style less a parody of a specific thing because i mean really skeet surfing is it's a parody of the beach boys and it incorporates certain melodic progressions from beach boy songs but it's not like we're gonna do kokomo and replace the words with you know something else like and that I don't understand why they dropped that after the first song. I really don't. Like, actually, of all the things in this movie that make no sense, which aren't that many, that's the one that makes the least sense because it's it's not a bad song. It's not super catchy, but it's not it's not a poor parody song, and that's a very easy thing to do. It's hard to make a good parody song. That's why there's only one person who does it. Like, it's not easy to do. Don't do it, I guess. I guess that's the that was the approach they went with. Do it once if you're going to do it at all, but don't do it the entire movie. I guess they maybe thought it would have gotten old after a while, but again, I don't think that would have been the case either. 
Yeah, I think the only thing that qualifies it as a parody song in this movie is that Macy's song, and that's it. You know, that that's replacing Elvis's Are You Lonesome Tonight with these lyrics about shopping. That That's all there is, because if I took How Silly Can You Get or Cutting the Rug and I just threw it on a mixtape and somebody didn't know, they'd be like, oh, this is kind of a cool throwback song to the 50s. There's not like, what the hell are they saying in these lyrics? What is it? You know, like when you have that moment of recognition, you're listening to a funny song and you're just like, wait, did they just say what I thought they said? Right. Like like a song like Pants by Here Come the Mummies. That's a funny song that kind of parodies funk, jazz, big band music, but it's still a song that's funny. But the things that they're saying are funny, and it's not like, you know, oh, I, oh they're, I, you know what, again, if you're going to do a parody, it's surprising that you have just Tutti Frutti, the song, in your movies, like, which low-key really don't fucking like that song. I, I don't know why. That song is not a song that I like hearing. Does that make sense? Is there, there's got to be songs like that for other people, but it's just, yeah. All right, guys, let's go ahead. We're going to take a break and we're going to play a whole bunch of interviews. First up, you're going to hear from Ian McNeese, who plays the Novel Tea Salesman. After that, you'll hear from Nigel himself, Chris Villiers. After that, you'll hear from screenwriter Martin Burke. And last but definitely not least, you're going to hear from writer-directors Jim Abrams and David Zucker. And we will be back with all of those right after these very brief messages. Hello, everyone. This is Malcolm McDowell. I just want to say that uh, this is a request to listeners of the Projection Booth podcast to become patrons of the show via patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Projection Booth. That's pretty simple. I think you can do that. It's a great show, and Mike, he provides hours of great entertainment. So now it's time to give back, my little droogies. Settle down and take a listen and have a sip of the old Malocco. And then you'll be ready for a little of the old in-out, in-out, real horror show. Bye-bye. Working on Top Secret was pretty early on in your career. Do you mind if I ask you how you even got involved with acting? I was very fortunate to go to a school which had a good drama department. My first ever r- role was a, um, was a Roman soldier standing on a stage. And I just uh, spent some time in America with my parents. I've been to Indianapolis, Indiana with my father for a year living there. I was about eight or nine. I came back, I had a full American accent, so I was fully Americanized. And so uh, I had one line in this little, standing on a stage, that there was a whole bunch of us Roman soldiers all standing in a line, and uh, I fell asleep as the character. When I woke up, they'd all gone, and someone walked on, and I said, gee, Buster, which way did they go? And the whole house, as one person laughed out loud, and that was the drug that got me going, or I, I just couldn't get enough of it. That that one laugh that I got from a whole full auditorium was enough to get me going for the, the rest of my years, really. So that started me off, which was a good a good start, really. And so I did a lot of drama at school, and then uh, um, uh, uh, regional theater, Salisbury Playhouse, then Lambda, London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. For, uh, my first job uh, uh, in the theater was uh, uh, Cinderella, the pantomime. Uh, and uh, my job was to muck out the 
coal house where they had the two ponies for her golden carriage that was going to take her to the party. Uh, and I told myself, you know, I can't get any lower in the theater than shoveling the shit, really, which is what I was doing. Like, it's only one way up from now, really. So that was, so that was it. So a lot of theater um, in the early days, Royal Shakespeare Company, as you know, and then television and film. So that's how I started. What was that division between television and film? Was it as stark as it was in the States at that same time? You, you had actors who did, you did film, you actors who did television, and that was it. There was uh, that, that, uh, People didn't cross over that line. You had American stars, film actors, and then you had TV actors. In England, we just crossed over all the time. People were doing film, television, film, television, film, television. So that's, but I remember in those days, it was very much so in America that you either did one or the other, you didn't cross over. Can you tell me about some of your early roles, even before you got Top Secret? I did a TV series called uh, Edge of Darkness, which was a very profound show. It was it won a lot of Baptists. had a wonderful actor called Bob Peck, who was in um, Jurassic Park. He was one of the ones that had eaten quite early on. But it was a fantastic show. And um, Marty Campbell was the director of the show. And he, he went on to do Golden Eye and, um, and also, um, you know, that sort of Spanish thing. Is it Zebra? Zorro. That's right. He did Zorro and he did... Uh, he did lots of work. Anyway, it was one of his shows, and it was fantastic. It took off. Uh, people just couldn't gather enough of the show. It was six parts, and I played an Amai character in it, which was, um, there were two of us, Hark Pendleton. We were the sort of MI5. We were the loves in the show, really. But, but it was a very serious piece of work, and it did very, very well, and it launched me. So, I mean, I got a lot of work after that, playing that type of character. That's what happens once you get known for a character. Everybody wants you to play that character again. So that's what I did for a while. But uh, I mean, in my early days, I mean, I did films. I did uh, 84 Terry Crossroad with Anthony Hopkins, uh, which I did. Uh, and then in the early days, Top Secret, of course, Whoops Apocalypse was another film I did in my early days. Just trying to think back during that time. Lots of television, uh, um, as I said. But yeah, really, it was, it was basically along those lines in the early days. So tell me how you got the role in Top Secret. Well, it's funny enough, right? Because, I mean, I thought to myself, this is a wonderful character. But the Zucker brothers, obviously we know the Zucker brothers because there were actually three of them. There were the two Zucker brothers and Abrams as well. When I went into the interview, I came up with this idea and they'd never thought of it. And they thought, oh my God, that's a great idea. We love that. And my idea was, was look, the thing is this, is that he's a spy, right? But why doesn't he get really excited and have fun with all the things that go on, you know, and just, just, it's this wonderful, all these little gadgets was, was they hadn't thought of it at all along those lines. So that's, that's how I got it, which was great. My first um, uh, scene with them was when I got shot. So I kept on asking people, yeah, who is going to uh, play the character that I'm with, you know, next week when I come in for my day? And I went, well, that's Omar. And I went, Omar? Yeah, well, Omar. Well, I thought, who? Sharif. I went, yeah, yeah, right. Almost to read, of course. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, pull the other leg. You know what I mean? Because I go, you know, it's a big fucking movie star, man. I mean, I'm not going to work with Omar Sharif. Who turns up on the day? Omar Sharif. And there am I thinking, oh my God, that, that there is this you know, legend from all these incredible movies that he's done, you know, Dr. Shivago and all those things. And of course, Lawrence of Arabia. There I am, you know, you know. It's my first big movie. It's my first day on a set at Pinewood Film Studios. And what was hysterical was this, uh, the assistant uh, came up to me and said, oh, I just like, before we start, I just like to say that 
we booked a um, a table in the restaurant at Pinewood for you, Mister Mister Sharif, at lunchtime, and went, oh, so I'm going to have lunch with Mister Sharif, of course, supposed to. So the two of us turn up there, and the thing is, this is that there I am in the restaurant. It's Carvery, so you know, which is in those days, it's like sort of roast beef and Yorkshire pudding and all the big trimmings and so I get a plateful and just my plate is heaving with food, right? I go back to the table. He's got a little green salad in front of him. That's all he has because he's a, he's a gourmet. He only eats one meal at night and it's a fantastic meal, but he doesn't have anything during the day. <laughs> it's great, huge plate of food and I'm thinking, oh my God, what have I done? So anyway, I'm, I'm saved, right, from any conversation with him because the whole of the restaurant come up to him and say, Hello, Omar. How are you? All the rest of it. So, always people come along and say hello. But you know, he was a dream. So, but what was what was really interesting about working with them, right? Was what what happened, right? Was you do a take, right? And the three of them would have a conversation. They'd all chat to each other. They'd be looking at the monitor. They talk with each other. Go back and forth, which took a while. And then one of them would come up to you and give you a note. One of them, not all three of them, just the one would come up. Not the same one. It would be a different one every time. But they come up and say, oh, that's great. But why do we try it this way? Or we want to do that or something like that. But they'd always have a, a conflag. They'd always talk together, the three of them. would all talk together, which, which, was, which was fantastic. We know it, was, it was a treat to actually work on a, a movie with Omar Sharif and the, those guys who were, who were very sort of flavor at the time, you know, which was great. You had to work with a lot of props. How was that? Oh, yes. Because, I mean, that's it. I mean, it's like... You know, getting those things and timing those right, which is, which is, which is, which is quite. And Omar, what a what a star he was because you know he had to have an exploding cigar, you know, and he had to be covered in black, you know, sort of certain great. He was a real, you know, he was a trooper. I mean, absolute trooper. And so, no, I, I, I mean, I, 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 I mean, no, no star at all. I mean, he was absolute. There was no agenda with him. He was he was really, and I think he quite enjoyed it because I mean, I think this probably the first film he'd ever done when he was funny because he'd always played very very straight straight parts so that was that was good for him but that he for once in his life he could have fun you know which was was great and no attitude at all i mean he's completely and utterly uh adorable to work with i mean very, very up for ideas and and uh, and took his notes from the from the directors and that so so absolutely i mean he was a he was a joy to work with yeah and i do love your laughter throughout the entire scene that you are being that spy, but also really enjoying humiliating this guy. I just love the idea of it's so funny what I do is so funny. <laughs> which which worked, which worked with him. And I can't tell you, I mean, since I since I did that film over the years, how many people have come up to me and go, What funny dog poo? They come up and give me lines. They give me lines from the from the movie. That they'd quote lines from the thing, from the you know, from the, the show and from my my part, which was great, you know, it became quite a, a, a cult, a cult movie, I think, with a lot of people. Yeah, it's so funny because when I look you up on like IMDb, it's very much your serious roles. One of your several turns, I think you've done Winston Churchill a few times, but I mostly know your um, Doctor Who appearance and then uh, Ace Ventura 2, Nature Calls. And it's just like, Oh yeah, I always forget that you were in that because you can do comedy and drama without any issue. Well, that's really that's why I've been so lucky over the years. Is that I've never really been pigeonholed. I've never been able. I've never been pushed into one area where I, that's that's really where I've stayed. 
and I'm really fortunate to have done both of those, um, both comedy and straight work, which is what I love doing. And like it's like you know, I mean, I can be a I can be a plumber in Doc Martin, you know, one week, which is you know, and then I can be a a prime minister, you know. It, it's like I'm I'm really fortunate to be able to do both both areas of uh, of work, really. And I think it stems from the fact that my grounding was very much theatre. In my early days, certainly in my 20s, I mean, I did an awful lot of theatre. And that is such a good groundwork for you to do work after that, really, you know, because you time stuff so well, you can time laughters and time, you know, to time stuff and you just see your technical approach and that. It, 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 it's, a, it's a gift to be able to do that amount of theatre, which turns into. T- I made a conscious, I made a conscious effort to actually, w- when I first started having children, um, I stopped doing theatre because theatre plays very badly in uh, in England. So I actually stopped it, and and so the next uh, and for seventeen years, I didn't do any theatre. I just did uh, TV and film. And then eventually, uh, my agent rang me one day. She said, "Oh, I got an offer of a job for you." And I said, "Oh, great." She said, "Well, look, um, it, it's the National Theatre." And well, yeah, no, you know what? You know, she said, "Hang on, hang on, hang on." I said, "Uh." It's a play about Harold Macmillan, one of our prime ministers. It's played by Jeremy Irons. He's going to play that part. And um, they want you to play Winston Churchill. And I went, oh, maybe this is the time to come back. Maybe this is my entree back into, you know. I stood on that stage on the first night uh, at the Littleton Theatre in London and a thousand people. And I think to myself, what am I doing? What on earth am I doing? I am terrified, absolutely terrified. But then... It got better and it got easier and it, you know, and then and that and really, and then I wished to myself, you know what, I should have started earlier because I enjoyed so much. It was fun to be back, you know. So I, it was a shame I'd missed all those years. Really, I should have done it earlier. How did COVID affect you? Just before COVID uh, hit, I actually ended up in a hospital. I had a respiratory infection, uh, and for three weeks I was in a hospital in London, uh, and I think probably it was a very early version of COVID that I got, right? So because of that, I was high risk. And they said, you know what? Don't go out. So my partner, Sidney, Frankie, and I stayed in. I'm a C-stop just, just because I was sort of susceptible to that sort of thing. But what got me through it was uh, something called Cameo. You know about Cameo at all? It, it, it's a system where, you know, if you've got if you've got someone's birthday or you've got a sort of, you know, wishing them happy Christmas or something like this. So they get hold of you and they say, look, would you, and they would always say, look, either would you do it as Winston Churchill or would you do it as Bert Lars from Doc Martin? Would you do it with characters? So I would do these cameos and, and, and I just joined them just before COVID started. And all throughout COVID, it was, it was just one thing that came me say. And what, what I do is I'd always say, look, can you give me, a lot more information so I can make it more personal. So I could give them lots of new information about, you know, were they married? Do they have children? Do they have pets? Do they know what their favorite things were? I could put them all into the cameo, right? And I said, what's their favorite tune? And so I would put that in at the end and play the tune. or So it was a really sort of wholesome little package, right? But it kept me going. And there was one in particular that I remember was I suddenly got this, uh, uh, it, was a, it was a rancher from Montana, right, for him, for, from his children, he said, look, the thing is this, is he's got this big farm, a big ranch, with the Black Angus uh, uh, cows on it, uh, beef. 
he likes nothing better than coming in and watching an episode of Doc Martin in the evening. And I thought to myself, this is crazy. A rancher from Montana watching Doc Martin? So I said, you know what? Can you just record this for me? Record his reaction so I could see it and put it on WhatsApp. And they did, and it was just brilliant. There was this, this rancher with a cowboy hat on, a little mugger or something, and he was watching this thing. He goes, he's caught. Who is this guy? Who is this guy? He knew who I was, but he's saying, is he talking to me? He's talking to me. And I was saying his name, Gene, James. He knows, is it for me? Is, it for, is he yes, it's for you, Dad, it's you. It was just brilliant, just brilliant. And at the end of it, I sort of got in touch with my guy. I said, listen, I'm coming to Montana. I got to meet this guy. One day I got to meet this guy. So I'll go and see him. What do we have to look forward to from you? Uh, this year has been the final series of the Doc Martin, which we did this year in May, April, May, June, July. So after 19 years, it started in 2004. So this is the 10th series, and this is going to be the final one, so we're not going to do it anymore. So that was the thing that we had to say goodbye to. But around that time, I did a couple of other things, just some cameos and things. I did a, a bit on a Ridley Scott movie called Napoleon, and Joachim Phoenix is playing Napoleon. And that lady from... Uh, the Crown, who played, you'll be able to look this up, uh, she played uh, Margaret in the early days, Princess Margaret. Uh, not the latest one, but the early one. Uh, she plays um, Josephine. And I play this wonderful character called Louis Eighteenth in the original film that they did with uh, Rod Steiger playing him. It was Orson Welles played in Louis Eighteenth. So I'm, I've, got some, I've got some shoes to fill there, I have to say. That was a treat to, to actually work with them um, Somewhat, some, a, a leg, another legend, Ridley Scott, who's his extraordinary, 80-something, still going strong, which was amazing. So that was, that was a treat to do that. And then most recently, I've just done a, um, um, a miniseries for ITB, which is the same company that makes Doc Market, about Cary Grant. Cary Grant is played by Jason Isaacs, who's a wonderful actor, and uh, he's, he was excellent as a Cary Grant, uh, and, and it's really on his early days. The three actors play it over the, over the four-part miniseries. A young boy, sort of a better guy in his teens, uh, because he, he, was, he was called Archie Leach originally, and he came from Bristol in London. So um, during the film, uh, he gets to do some film work, and I play Alfred Hitchcock. So I'm playing him, uh, and there's a scene from North by Northwest when he's, you know, which I didn't realize, but that scene was actually filmed as we filmed it in a studio with a green screen. So it's like um, you've got him sort of with uh, this this crop duster plane flying low over him. And he, you know, so we put all that in, and I play. And, and, and there's a sort of nice scene we have where where Hitchcock has a Halloween party, uh, and everything is blue. All the food is blue. All the it's actually happened, and so that's a that's a treat. So so playing Hitchcock and another iconic character like Winston. So that's nice to, nice to be asked to do something like that. I imagine you don't have to do a ton of research for Alfred Hitchcock as opposed to when you do Winston Churchill, you probably... Yeah, I did a ton of research for Winston Churchill, but with um, Alfred Hitchcock, I was lucky enough to see that there's a lot of um, stuff with him on YouTube. So there's a lot of um, him talking about various things of being interviewed and that, so one, one could get some speech patterns Along with them, they did a brilliant uh, makeup job with me. They we put a bald bald wig on first, and then they just added some hair at the back of me. It looked terrific. It was a very impressive thing. If you want um, 
you want me to send some photographs to you, I can send some photographs if you want to. I'll do that, and then I'll send, send a few Winston for you as well. And I'll send a few things, bits and pieces for you, yeah. Mr. McNeese, thank you so much for your time. This was so great. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. I went to Paris in France. I found a little romance. She was walking down the boulevard. I know I should have been good. I never thought that I would. He double crossed and baby crossed my heart. I'm so curious as far as how you even decided to get into acting. I mean, was that kind of a, a natural decision for you? My first ambition ever was to be a ballet dancer. I used to put on the big march from Capelia on our sound system. And my mother might, I'll come back to my dad in a sec. My mother had these big, big mirrors. And I would run across the room and bounce on the sofa and, and jump in front of the mirrors to see myself. And then my mother said, I was about five going, um, Christopher, you've got to stop that because you're breaking this over. So uh, then she gave me a conductor's baton because I used to love the idea of being in charge of the orchestra. And so I would stand in front of the mirror and conduct the last of the big march for Capelia. And, and, and then one day I broke my conductor's baton trying to get the orchestra quiet. And of course, like every kid growing up, I wanted to be a cowboy uh, and would hide behind the, the sofa and, and shoot aliens and, and, and all, all of that stuff. And, and then, of course, I wanted to be a, a, a Catholic priest, even though I'm not Catholic. But I think and the, the one unifying thing of all these things is dressing up and pretending to be someone else. So about the age of like maybe six or seven, I decided that the one job I, I, I wanted to do was to be an actor. And my dad was a movie director who won at Berlin. My mom was an actress. My sister's an Oscar-winning film producer. My brother's an actor. So it's the only industry I really understand. And I understand it through 360 degrees. I have no idea how the internal combustion engine works. I have no idea how airplanes steady in the sky when they're made of metal and they're full of people and their luggage. That is impossible. But I understand every single bit of how you make a film or a TV show from the pitch deck, through the treatment, through the script, through getting a producer, getting a director, getting a cast, getting a budget, and editing, and uh, post-syncing, and the score, and all post-production, and grading, and releasing. So it's it's kind of the only thing I really get. And I got it from a very early age. And of course, then you find out that to go to drama school, you only need like sort of, you know, barely any education. You don't even really need to be able to read. So I thought, this is even better. This is ideal for me. Uh, and then my mother, who ran away, she didn't run away to the circus. She ran away to join the Royal Shakespeare Company when she was 15. She said, uh, you're not doing that on my watch. Uh, you are going to finish your education and you're going to get a proper education. And then if you still want to be an actor, you can go and do the acting. So, okay. 
So I left, uh, I left uh, school. I was actually expelled from school at the age of 17, and I joined the National Youth Theatre. And then um, I got an equity card, like, you know, um, a SAG card um, in the UK, in London. And then auditioned for drama schools and got into every drama school I, I went for. And at that time, Central School of Speech and Drama was, was deemed the best. And I went to go and ask someone whose opinion I respected. And he said, you've got into RADA and Central and Guildhall and Bristol. They're like, the, the, they're the top four. I said, yeah, I, yeah, obviously. <laughs> Which one should I go to? He said, well, at the, this moment, Central is, is the number one. Go there. So I went there and spent three years there and uh, had an absolute awe and left there and went for my first TV interview. I did some jobs in, in repertory theater in the UK. And I went for my first TV interview for a job. Uh, in London, I went up and met this director. And I walked out of the meeting and I walked down the corridor to go to the lift. And I heard these footsteps running after me. And it was the director. And he said, Do you want to play the role? I said, Yeah, I'd love to play the role. That'd be great. And he handed me the script. He said, Right, it's yours. And the lift door shut. And I thought I was walking on air. I thought, Wow. And I had, it was a cop show, of course, like every bit of television is now. And I had to, I was a young policeman and I had to save the life of the policewoman. Uh, who was about to get attacked, and but they they um, beat me up, and I end up in hospital with the famous policewoman standing over my bed, going, "But will he ever play the violin again?" And uh, and um, and that was my first TV show. So so, and then I did a movie called Scarlet Pimpernel, and and so just it was like it felt like the the most natural warm bath to get into. My dad was a movie director, and he died when I was three years of age in an accident in a steelworks in South Wales, filming. And they were up a wooden gantry about 35 foot up in the air. And um, a, f a fire broke out. And like my dickhead dad, he's like the captain of the ship. He, he ordered the sound crew down the ladder first and then ordered the camera crew down the ladder. And he was the last person off the bridge, uh, by which time the ladder was on fire. So he had to jump, and he jumped 35 foot down and landed on a whole load of scrap metal cut himself to pieces, and died three days later in hospital. Weirdly, the accident happened on my birthday, and apparently one of his very conscious thoughts was, I don't want to die on, on Chris's birthday. So he died three days later. But I was three years of age and, and had no memory of it, and uh, so I grew up without a dad. We could afford a color telly, but we couldn't afford a dad. And all of my life, about five years ago, four years ago, five years ago, something like that, I'm, I made a short film in Bosnia, in Bosnian, I wrote it. Uh, I don't speak Bosnian, but a friend then translated it to Bosnian. I'd been to Bosnia quite a lot to the Sarajevo Film Festival, and I and one day I was sitting there in the summer, and this my assistant, uh, who was a Bosnian girl, I said, "Well, you must have been a kid during the siege of Bosnia, the famous siege, the worst siege, the longest siege in modern warfare. What do you remember? What's the distinct thing that you remember?" And she said, well, there was one day I was six years of age and it had snowed during the night. And my dad told me to go out in the garden and collect the snow and fill the bath up with snow because there was no water, there was no heat, there was no electricity, and, you know, there was, there, were, there was nothing, no hope. And um, she said, and, and, and my dad said, fill the bath up with water so when the, the, the ice, the snow melts, it'll be water. And they lived on the top floor of this apartment block. And she did it with her brother, who was four this sort of Herculean task of carrying buckets, plastic buckets and saucepans full of snow uh, and not getting shot by snipers who were, and I went 
fuck me, that's a movie. That's a movie. That's a, a fantastic short film. And I'm going to call it Snow for Water. Would you mind if I made a film of your story? She said, no. So I wrote the film and then cast it with some fabulous Bosnian actors. And I went to the, the, the film community in London and said, can you give me some money to make a Bosnian film? And they went, what? You're making a Bosnian film. You're not making a British film. You're making a Bosnian film. Go to Bosnia and get the money. So I went back to Bosnia and said, can you give me some money to make the film? And they went, Chris, we're Bosnian. We have no money. We dream of joining the EU. We have nothing. So eventually I sent um, uh, 10 emails out to 10 friends and went, I need you to give me some money. And blame me down, I, I got enough of a, uh, uh, I, I got enough of a budget to make the film. You know, your your uh, your dollar goes a long way in Bosnia, uh, and you know you can take you can go out for dinner with three people and drink some of the finest wines in Bosnia, and um, and have three course meal, and it won't set you back fifteen bucks for the entire thing. So you get a lot of bang for your buck in Bosnia. So I made the film, and then realized that I hadn't got any budget for post-production so i re emailed these people back and said thank you firstly you've been great but i just need a little bit more so they actually all gave me a little bit more and then i could do the post-production anyway i entered the film for the berlinale the you know film festival in berlin and it was selected and my sister went are you fucking kidding me your your, your little bosnian movie that you've made for peanuts has been selected for the berlinale it's way more important than Cannes. it's way more important than venice and toronto the Berlinale is the biggest and best film uh, festival in in the world, and you've been selected. That is like huge. Anyway, um, so I yeah, I know. We knew. So um, I went out to Berlin for ten days, and there was like four or five screenings of it, and I did Q and A's, not in German, obviously, all Bosnian. And then they sent me an e, and then all my old entourage of actors and people who were with me for the thing all went back to Bosnia, and I was left alone in Berlin. And I was sent an email late one night going. Do you want to come to the award ceremony? And I went, yeah. I, I, I get. I'm, when is it? And they said we're at six thirty on the Saturday night. I said, oh, I can't. I'm. I've got a plane at five o'clock on the Saturday afternoon. I'm. I. You know, I'm in an Airbnb in in Berlin. It's finished. Um. And they went, oh, we'd love you to come to the award ceremony. I said, I just, I can't. They went, okay. So I bring up my sister. I said, what does that mean? What does that mean? She said, tell me exactly what they said. So I told her exactly what they said. She said, write them an email and say, if they will give you a hotel room for the night, you'll stay and you'll change your flight. And if they do that, it might mean that you've won something. Oh, brilliant. That's brilliant. That's why she's a top producer. So I sent the email going, if you, I, you know, I'd love to come to you. Give me a room for the night in your nice hotel over there and I will stay and I'll change my flights. And they sent me an email back almost immediately going, we don't give rooms in hotels, you idiot. So I thought, oh, okay, well, obviously I have one other thing. And I rang up my sister. And she said, well, maybe there's some empty seats. And they wanted to fill up the seats, you know. So I went to see some movie, a screening of some movie that night on my own and came out of the, um, came out of the movie house and turned my phone back on. And there was an email from the Berlin Alley going, we will give you a hotel room for the night because we are giving you an award on Saturday night. So would you, I went to this, uh, the smart hotel, I can't remember what it's called, smart hotel in Berlin, went up to the bar and ordered myself a very, uh, a nice, really nice double whiskey and sat at the bar on my own. And I thought, why isn't my dad here? 
you know, all the time, my dad never met my kids. My dad wasn't at my wedding. And I missed him all of those times. And I'm sitting in a bar, and he won at Berlin many, many years ago with a film. And I've just been told that I'm going to win. And there, and I, I re- remember just raising my glass and, and, and toasting him. So, yeah, I, then I, I made a short film, won at Berlin, or, and won a prize at Berlin. And uh, so, yeah, I'm steeped in this sodding industry. There, there really is nothing else I understand. And it's incredibly important to me. And after I made a film called First Night with Sean Collery and Richard Gill, uh, we had a personal trainer on the movie. He wasn't paid to get me fit. He was paid by the movie to get anyone who wanted to train fit. So Julia Ormond and Richard Gere and I used to go running um, at like stupid o'clock in the morning, six o'clock in the morning near Pinewood Studios. And we'd just go for like three or five mile run and come back, have a shower, go to makeup, get ready, shoot all day. <laughs> so it was one day we were, we were running through this, uh, behind Pinewood Studios, there's a massive great park called Black Park. And we were running there and this, uh, our, our personal trainer was an ex-captain of the parachute regiment, an ex-special forces soldier. So he would be running in front, very straight, going, yes, and then I killed a man with my bare hands and then I ate his legs and then I used the other leg to beat up three other people and then I, I killed them and then I ate their legs and, you know, because he's a roughy tufty And there's Julia Rowland and Richard Gere and me go, and I, we get around a corner and I turn to them and say, when we get around the corner, hide behind a tree. I said, what? Just hide behind a tree. So we all ran around the corner and hid behind trees. And this voice went off into the distance going, and then I another killed another man with my bare hands. And I, I lived inside his body for three weeks. And then I, where are you? Where are you? This is very silly. Come out. Anyway, he eventually found us, of course, because we were like giggling like school children behind trees. And then he made us pick up an entire log of some tree and carry it all the way back as our punishment. Uh, but it was worth it for the love. Anyway, the end of the movie finished, and this guy, this personal trainer said, I want to start a film extras background artist agency, and I want to start it with you. And I went, really? I'm an actor. I, that, uh, no. And he went, think about it. Don't make a decision. Think about it. So we talked about it and thought about it for a while. And lo and behold, uh, I then thought it was a good idea. And we started the company, and we called it 2020 Casting. And there was a Luke Besson film called Fifth Element about to start. And the first AD of First Night was going to be the first AD on the Luke Besson film. And I went in to see him, and I went, give us a job. Give my company a job. And he went, oh, Chris, this is a big Luke Besson film. Why should I give you the job? I said, well, you're my friend. If, if we fail, sack, the, sack us, sack the company. And I will dissolve the company because my friendship with you is actually more important than this 2020 casting thing. And he looked at me and went, well, okay. I need 150 six foot four guys to be robots. Oh, God. Okay. So I ran, went out and dialed my phone, rang up this personal trainer and said, uh, we need 150 six foot four guys to be robots. And he went, well, I better get in touch with the regiment then. So got in touch with the parachute regiment and we had people like that. And then our second, so we did that, and it was great. Our second film was Ken Branagh's Hamlet, uh, and we provided all the background and all the soldiers in that. And then we did a very small film called Saving Private Ryan, where we provided the German army and the American army, uh, but not the D-Day landings, because that was done in Ireland. And then we did Harry Potter and Elizabeth and blah, 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 Bond, lots of Bond movies and lots of other films. And from in literally 3.2 seconds, we went from naught to 60 miles an hour. And, uh, and became very quickly the biggest and most successful background extras agency in, in the United Kingdom.
So kind of everything I've ever done has been involved in this industry. And of course, like every industry, you know those, those uh, surfers in Malibu, they all wear wetsuits, they all wear black wetsuits, and they, they all go out and they sit on their surfboard and they, they feel the swell of the, of the water underneath them, and they're waiting for the wave. And the, the best way I can describe acting, I think, or frankly, being in this industry, is you, you're waiting for the, the next wave. You're waiting for the swell, and, you, and then someone thinks that it's a wave and, and starts to get up and go, and, and then they fall off. And it wasn't really a wave. And, and, then, and then a wave does come, and everyone tries to get on it, and everyone tries to surf and surf and surf. And, and maybe you're lucky. Maybe you're lucky, and that, that wave carries you forward a long way, and then eventually you fall off and you have to swim out. And maybe you're really lucky, like you know the Ken Branners of this world, where that one wave carries you all the way into the beach. But most of the time, you have a wave which lasts a bit, and it's great, and then you fall off or you jump off, and then you have to swim out and wait for the next wave, and you're sitting there with a whole bunch of other people waiting for the swell, waiting for the next wave that's gonna, that you're going to try and jump on board. You have the highs and the lows. You have the euphoric moments of, um, look at me, mama, on top of the world. And, and other moments of utter hell when, you know, you can't afford to put shoes on your children's feet, let alone, you know, baked beans on toast. And, and you go, what am I doing? This is the most immature thing I could ever do. And yet, I wouldn't do anything else. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of how I got into the industry. That's a really long answer. I apologize. Tell me about how you got the role in Top Secret. Were, were there many other people that were up for it? My agent rang me up. Uh, and said, Chris, I need you to go for a meeting. And could you wear some really, really tight jeans and uh, a really tight T-shirt? What kind of job are you sending me up for? I'm not sure I, I really want to go for this job. I can't tell you. They won't release anything. Uh, they're going to send some sides to you. Um, I have really no idea what the film's about. But they've asked you to, to wear, you know, figure-hugging clothes. So these signs have arrived in the old days that before email by post in the mail. And I read them, and there's like six pages of gobbledygook. There's a, a, a guy who's a singer, maybe, who's on tour, he's American, who's on tour in East Germany. And there's a guy called N Nigel, who's the torch, who's the head of the French resistance, but they're in East. None of this makes sense. But I learned the lines, and I went along wearing a ridiculously tight pair of jeans and a, and a white T-shirt. I had no idea about Zucker Abram Zucker, or indeed about anyone else who was up for the role. And uh, I went in and met them, and it was immediately, I mean, I, I, Jerry and David and Jim are still really good friends. And uh, the producer was Hunt Lowry. And whenever I'm in LA, I, I stay with Hunt. In fact, I went and stayed with Jim Abrams when Hunt was getting married and went to his wedding. Um, these are really, really, really very special people who I'm uh, immensely fond of. I think it was Jerry or maybe Jim sat, you know, I walked into the room and said, so what do you think the film's about? I think it's about some American Elvis Presley singer who's going to East Germany on a concert tour and gets hooked up into some sort of weird French resistance thing with, and has to rescue the scientists for their... They went, oh my gosh, you got it! You got it! Oh, it's fabulous! All of that from six pages of utter rubbish. So I walked out the room 
and went away thinking that was the weirdest interview I have ever been in my very short time. I was about 21 years of age, maybe in my very short career that that goes up there is really weird. Since then, I've been on lots of weird ones. So it was, but it was the first really weird one. I heard nothing. I heard nothing, and I and then I was cast in a BBC costume drama of a Jane Austen book called Mansfield Park. Uh, wonderful, very starry cast of good English actors. And then while I was shooting that, I had to go to the BBC because I was they wanted to see me about this Penelope Keith series. Penelope Keith is a very famous comedian in the UK. She's sort of like Lucille Ball, but no, I mean, she was the biggest star on British TV. And it was to play opposite her in a comedy show. And literally the day I finished filming Mansfield Park, I had to get in a car and drive to start shooting this other thing. And I rang up my agent about a week before and going, did we ever hear anything from those American guys? He said, no, no, we never did. He said, I'll ring, I'll ring up Mary Selway, who was the doyen of casting, and she cast it. Uh, I'll ring her up and, and, and see whether she ever got any feedback. We had no feedback, no nothing. Anyway, the phone goes dead, and about five minutes later, he rings me up and said, you got it. And I said, what? You got that the thing. They thought you were brilliant, and they thought, literally, the moment you walked out, you got the part. They just didn't bother to tell us. Okay, and then, by, and then of course, the phone goes dead again, and, the phone, and then it's production me up going, we need you to look like a, a sort of Californian beach boy. We need, we will make you a member of any gym you want to be a member of, and we need you to find a personal trainer who's going to beast you. And I, well, I'm ter- I, for the next nine weeks, I'm shooting this comedy series. And then, well, till when? Well, I know, whatever it was. They said, well, we start shooting like 10 days after that. Wow. So I rang up the BBC and went, I've just been cast in this Paramount movie. Uh, they want me to go to um, the gym with a personal trainer. And they said, well, what gym do you want to? So I said, well, I think it's this gym over there. They've got a really nice personal trainer with really big muscles. And I think that's what they want me to look like. He said, well, we better make sure our rehearsal rooms are just around the corner from the gym. Then. I went, okay. So I went to the gym and they said, well, normally it was different times then. Oh, normally we have uh, girls' days and boys' days. But looking at your body, uh, you need to come every day. So I, I went seven days a week, three hours a day with this personal trainer. And I changed my body and I, uh, and I got seriously fit. And it was a real, real education. And I, I, I look at it now and I feel, you know, that in those days, nobody had to take their shirt off. Uh, well, actually, girls did, but no boys did. It wasn't, you know, now if you're a young actor in, in Hollywood, if you don't have a six pack, you don't get the part. You know, they're all expected to take their shirts off and, 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 and they've got, I don't know how they do it. They, I don't know how they spend, uh, you know, an hour and a half a day or two hours a day in the gym ready so when that audition comes along they say oh can you um, pop your shirt off they've got that six-pack ready in fact i did an american show years ago with a, an american actor who had a very hairy chest he used to come into makeup and and cut his so the hair was in the valleys and so the, the mountains were the six-pack so he used to uh the color in his own six-pack um uh which was equally ludicrous um but uh, so I I feel sorry for young guys these days who have to work out in the gym and make sure that they are you know in perfect shape you know every single day of the week. I blame Hugh Jackman because um you know I don't know how he does it. I don't know how he shrinks himself like that. 
and doesn't drink any water and presumably never drinks any alcohol and lifts these huge, great muscles, uh, you know, weights. Because when I finished doing Top Secret, I said to the personal trainer, I said, now what do I do? I've got all these things. How do I get rid of them? You know, you don't get rid of them. That's your stuff with them. If you don't exercise, they will turn to fat. So you've got to exercise. You can stretch more, you know, play lots of tennis or anything else. But you know you're stuck with them. And like you, Jagman, must be stuck with that body now for the rest of his life. And, you know, what's he going to be like at 70? I guess he, we won't see his top half. So um, no one will know. So I finished shooting the comedy series for the BBC, finished shooting Mansfield Park for the BBC, and, and then I had, and was training three hours a day. And then we started shooting. And then, I, I mean, obviously I read the script. And we had a, a, I think we had a read through, or we had something. And uh, Jerry and David and and uh, and Jim said, we have a rule, which is that we want five gags per page. We want five jokes per page. If it hasn't got five jokes on this page, it's not good enough. Well, but we want you guys, the cast, to feel free to suggest anything. So the cast are now going brilliant. We can suggest things. They said, yeah, anything. So they did, often. And uh, David and Jerry and Jim would just turn again, and no, no, we thought of that one, and the others noted that. You know, I, I got one gag in it. I got one gag in it in the entire movie, which is when Lucy and I first meet and we do the whole Blue Lagoon theme. I'm wearing nothing but a loincloth and a necklace, obviously. <laughs> the only gag I got in the movie is when I said, and she's taking measurements. And she said, I said, well, why don't I, why don't I give her things to measure? So what I'm talking to her, why don't I just do this? And then she can measure my bicep. I went, oh, brilliant. And then why doesn't she just drop down and come? And they went, oh, yeah. So I, I actually managed to get a gag in that they hadn't thought of, uh, which was oh, amazing. But then also, hysterically, because we've been filming for, I know, well, it was pre-production. It was pre-production, but Primer Studios, costume fittings, all that stuff going on. And I said to the second AD, second assistant director, who's this guy, Val Kilmer, who's playing Nick? Uh, where is he? I want to go say hello. He said, oh, no, Val doesn't want to meet you. Excuse me? Val doesn't want to meet you until you meet, finally, in the final denouement of the film, when you face off and you fight each other. That's ridiculous. Where is Val? Well, he's over there in the thing. I said, come on, let's go meet him now. So we went... Uh, me and this second assistant, I went and found Val. And I walked in and said, Val, it's Chris. Good to meet you. I'm playing Nigel, the torch. And Val and I became best mates. He had a flat in Sloan Square in Chelsea, and I had a flat in which I owned in, in Parsons Green. And we just became inseparable. And, uh, you know, it was his first, was it his first movie? And it was my, say, third movie. And we, he and I would go running in the morning with the girl playing Supergirl. We'd go out running in the morning, and then she'd go and be Supergirl, and we'd go off and do Top Secret. At that point, they were shooting Last Days of Pompeii at Pinewood, and the entire backlot was filled with sort of Roman amphitheaters. I walked down the, the corridor to my costume, to my dressing room, because we were in the studio, so it wasn't trailers, it was dressing rooms. And I walked down the corridor there, and the, the, the guy showed me to my dressing room, and there was my name on the door. And opposite my door, there was Laurence Olivier's door, who was in Last Days of Pompeii. Laurence Olivier is opposite me? He said, yeah, no, Mr. Reef is just there. What? 
Yeah, but Lawrence Levy is going to be finishing in a couple of days uh, because the movie's going to be wrapped in it. And I walk into my dressing room and there's a big sitting room with sofas and chairs and a telephone. I pick up the telephone. It works. Great. And there's a big thing of of um, fruit, you know, in cellophane. I don't know why people give those as gifts, but they do. And then there was a, another room which had makeup chairs and things. And then another room which is a bathroom with the shower and bathroom. I thought, they've given me the wrong dressing room. This is like a palace. This is where Laurence Olivier should be. I should be in the shoebox at the tail end of the corridor. They've given me, and then there was a knock at the door. And I'm like, oh, this is so embarrassing. Anyway, I open the door, and there's Laurence Olivier. And I think, oh, Christ, I am in the wrong dressing room. I am. I shouldn't be in the shoebox at the end of the thing. And this is his dressing room. And he's old now, and he's got lost. Well, he hasn't got lost. He's found the right place. And I said, I think your dressing room's just opposite mine. And he went, no, 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 I'm not actually Laurence Olivier. I'm a man called Harry Van Engel, and I'm Laurence Olivier's double. I went, what? And he, he said, yeah, I'm his double. Uh, I actually tend to appear in films more than he does. I said, I'm sorry? He said, well, you know, all those hands turning doorknobs, that, that's my hand, all those long-distance shots of, of Laurence Olivier walking up a hill, or that that's me. Um, and uh, when when it's his back walking away, that's me. And uh, when it's his foot, it's me. And then they can, because he's so expensive, and he's Laurence Olivier. So, you know, they pay you for, you know, and he said, on the bounty, I was, I was. They couldn't afford to have him there uh, for reading Harry, Anthony Hopkins's lines. So I was sitting in for Lord Olivier, reading the script, and 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 Anthony Hopkins was sitting opposite me. And he said, Anthony Hopkins made me cry. His performance was so moving. I'm sitting there just reading the lines, and there's Anthony Hopkins, and and he made me cry. And um, anyway, he said, I'm your guy. I'm going to be your stand-in in the movie. I said, my stand-in? They said, yeah, you know, when we do the lighting. And I went, what, you're going to be my stand-in? He said, yeah, if that's all right with you. I said, it's fine with me. So, you know, 6.15, get to Pinewood, go running, go and have a shower, get into costume, makeup, go onto the set, and there's Lawrence Olivier standing there, except it's Harry Van Engel. And uh, he said, oh, um, Chris, uh, the light's there, and this is where you come to the window, and this is where you turn around and do that. And you go, uh, why, thanks very much. Now, fuck off and go and get me a coffee, would you? And people can go, oh my God, you're telling us to read a fuck off. So um, I had a ball. One day, Val and I are walking across Pinewood to go and see a set that's being built on another soundstage around the corner. And we're just shooting the breeze, and it's like 5 o'clock, maybe 6.30 in the evening. And I think we, maybe we've got a beer in our hands. We're done for the day. And we're just going to go, let's go and have a look and see what the set's like for the thing. And he says, yeah, great. So we go and have a beer, and we walk over there. And I said, have you got a girlfriend? And he went, yeah, yeah. I said, what's her name? And he went, Cher. I went, share what? And he went, share. I went, okay. It's a weird name. Um, is she going to come over to see you while you're in London? Or is she not going to bother? I said, no, actually, she's coming over this weekend. Why didn't we meet up Saturday morning? I went, yeah, that'd be great. Why didn't we meet in that cafe in the King's Road? Because he was at one end of the King's Road and I was at the other in Chelsea. Uh, why didn't we meet at that cafe? And um, we can I, we can meet. And I'll, I'll bring Katie, who's my girlfriend, so I go home to my flat to Casey and went, oh, Saturday morning, um, Val wants us to meet his girlfriend. Uh, she's called Cher. We're going to meet in the cafe in the King's Room. And she looked at me like I was like a total dweeb. And she went, you, you mean Cher? I don't know. I name Cher. I don't, he wouldn't tell me anymore. Cher, no, she, you mean Sonny and Cher, Cher. You mean Cher. I, oh, 
<laughs> like, do you think? Do you think that's share? Saturday morning comes, and Katie and I get in a car. We drive down the King's Road and we park the car, and we walk around the corner of this cafe, and there is Cher sitting in head to foot leather with her crinkly hair and dark glasses, and there's Val looking a million dollars. I mean, looking. You know, he's a good-looking boy, certainly then. And Cher was just looking like... There's some people, when you meet them, they're like a sort of laser beam of light that shoots up into the sky. I spent a day with Freddie Mercury and an evening with him, and he was like that. He was like this pillar of light. I mean, he was a rock star, but he was like nothing I did. Away from the public... He was quite camp and booked book teeth. And, and when he came into the public, he became... And Cher was the same. Sitting at home, she'd come over to us and we'd go to see them and she'd curl up on the sofa without shoes on, without makeup on. The moment she stepped out of her front door, she looked like a beam of light. She looked like a superstar. I said, isn't that really tiring to do? To be like that the whole time? To have to get dressed up, I mean, it's great. Trust me, it works. And she said, Christopher, you don't understand. If I go out of my front door without makeup on, without the whole share thing, I'm on the front page of the National Enquirer going, share without makeup. He said, And she said, that is not worth it. I have to do this when I do that. And Cher and Freddie Mercury were, were like in the same bracket. They were like white light power torches of stardom. And I feel very blessed, actually, to have, to have got to know both of them. That must have been a very odd experience to be playing comedy, but to have to play it so seriously. I've done a lot of comedy. Uh, not recently. It's a shame, because comedy is the most serious you ever have to be. You are more serious making a comedy about where the gag is, what the gag is, and, and where the audience are looking, okay, you do that in the edit, but how you build the gag to the being the gag. You can be kneeling down over your dead brother and, and your shoulders can be heaving because you're giggling because it's ludicrous and silly and fun. And, and, and the comedy isn't like that. Comedy is, uh, and with David and, and Jerry and Jim, you had three directors, one who would direct the foreground, Jerry, which, of course, was great when I did Top Secret, uh, when I did um, First Night. I rang him up and said, I gather you're coming over to do a Knights in Shining Armor movie. I want, to play, I want to play the bad guy. And I sent him endless photographs of me as Maligan, which Ben Cross played. And he went, Chris, you're not Maligan. You're not Maligan. No, but you can be Sir K. So I ended up being in that movie. Uh, and so he would direct the, the, the foreground action, i.e. the principal cast. And then I think it was Jim would direct the middle area and then David would direct the far distance. So they would constantly be looking for gag, deep focus gags that um, you kind of had to watch the film two or three times to be able to go, oh, I never saw that thing in the background. And, and but yeah, making comedy is, 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 is incredibly serious. And, uh, you kind of, I mean, there was a scene in, in Top Secret where I discover or uh, the girl discovers that I'm the bad guy and I've just been sucked off by a calf and mounted by a bull. And so I have a rather strange walk. 
understandably. And I'd sort of been working on my rather strange walk. And uh, David and Jerry and and, um, and Jim loved the walk, so that was good. They bought into that. Anyway, we were filming this bit where where I get the girl, and she keeps on looking down towards a, a gun, which is just propped up against a tree over there. And she keeps on, her eyes keep flicking towards the gun. And I wa- watch her eyes flicking towards the gun. And so I, I go and, and get the gun with my rather painful walk. And, and I pick up the gun, and the tree falls down behind me. That's the gag. We haven't got a polystyrene tree or a balsa wood tree or even a papier-mâché tree. We've got a real tree. And we're filming it in the middle of nowhere. And they've obviously bought this tree from this farmer. And they've taken a chainsaw to the bottom of it and they've put it on the hinges and they've got a crane over there out of shot to lift up the tree to put it upright again when it falls over. But it's a tree made of 100% wood. And it's not just a little spindly little... You know, no, this is a motherfucker of a tree. We rehearse it, and they go, oh, yeah, and then you go over, and I have to talk the whole time about whatever it is I'm talking about, and and, and do the funny walk. And they said, and then you go over and you get the gun, and I get the gun, and then the tree falls down behind you. Great. Okay, we're going to go for a take. So um, I get out of my car or whatever it is I'm driving, and I start talking, looking at her. She looks towards the gun. And I do my out painful walk and I carry on talking the whole time and I pick up the gun and I hear the tree and the tree begins to fall. I'm walking away from the tree and the tree falls over. Yeah, that's great, Chris, but you've got to walk slower. Okay, but there's a, there's a, there's a tree that's on hinges, uh, which is falling down just behind me. It's not made of plastic or, or balsa wood or papier-mâché. It's a real tree. Yeah, I know. Just walk slower. So we do it again and the tree gets hitched up. When I get out of the car, action, get out of the car, ouch, painful walk, yammy, 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 talk, 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 pick up the gun, walking really slowly, I think, and the tree falls down behind me. No, Chris, no. You've got to walk really slow. Okay, okay. Shut up, and the tree gets yanked back up again. Action. I get out of the car, I do my ouch, ouch, painful walk, talking all the time, look towards the gun, walk over, pick up the gun. I am walking like a snail, and I hear this tree it misses me by 10 centimeters. And cut. Oh, Christ, that is weird. Oh, my God. And I go and sit down in my chair with my name on the back, which I'm very proud of having a chair with my name on the back. I'd done two movies before then. I didn't have a chair with my name. Sitting down with the chair with my name on the back was it. And Omar Sharif was sat next to me, and he said, Chris, do you know how much that tree missed you by? I said, no, it felt quite close, Chris. It missed you by inches. You are... And, and then the props guy came up to me and said, Chris, uh, can I get you anything? And as a joke, I just said, yes, gin and tonic, ice and a slice. Because I was a bit like this, because the tree had just literally missed me by inches. But the director were happy, so I was happy. And five minutes later, the, the um, props guy came up with a silver salver and a cut crystal glass and a gin and bitter lemon. He said, sorry, sir, we're all out of tonic. So I sat there in the middle of this nowhere with my chair with my name on the back with Omar Sharif on a lovely lovely summer's day having a gin and bitter lemon for having narrowly missed being killed by a real tree in the middle of a park there we go and then of course we got to the you know the famous underwater fight sequence where Val and I both had to train as scuba divers to be able to do it and we trained together and of course we worked out the whole fight and not only 
were we wearing lead belts, but we had weights in our shoes so we couldn't float to the surface. And we were filming 20, 25 foot down in the bottom of a tank with lights. No, no, no. Lights have got electricity and electricity and water. No, no, no. No, but no, we need the lights and cameras. Cameras have electricity. Yeah, we, well, we obviously need the cameras. Lights and cameras filled with electricity underwater with Val and I and stuntmen and a set. And in fact, there's a there's a, a part of it when I run at Val or I smash a chair over Val and he falls backwards over the table of the four guys playing poker. And then he kicks me with his legs and I whiz back through the water and smack against the bar and then pick up the gun and try and shoot him. And then the barmaid smashes the bottle over my head and the light falls down and he jumps out of the way. Two things. One of the four poker players is Hunt Lowry, the producer of the movie, sitting there with his hat, because his hat's floating about well, four or five inches above his head, his beard and his cards. Uh, and uh, so that's, that's the producer. And the other thing is that to make me fly or to make either of us fly backwards through the water whatever, at a given minute, they would hook a steel wire to the back of our trousers, which would then go straight back through the set, if there was a bit of set in the way, to the side of the pool, up to the surface of the pool, and then onto the surface of the stage where we were filming at Pineland, where the British tug-of-war team would all hold it, and Jerry Zucker would be there going, now, and then they would pull back, and you'd slide back through the water and then bang your head uh, against the bar. But Val and I were the only people in control of the whole sequence, because we were the ones who had to, we had um, masks on and then a respirator in our mouths. And we would we would kind of decide, we'd rehearse how many blows we were going to do. Because every time you get hit, you've got to blow out air. And because I'm the Brit and the baddie, and he's the American and the hero, uh, he obviously hits me more than I hit him. Uh, so I have to blow out more air. And um, so we'd work out which bits, how long we would, you know, one, two, five punches before... We would, we would, that would be a cut, and then the camera would move angles, and then we'd reshoot that little bit. And we'd stand in the water, holding each other's shoulders, breathing, which was good. Well, otherwise, we'd drown. Um, and then we'd take our, um, there'd be a stuntman, then we'd take our masks off and hand them to the stuntman. And then we'd hold our shoulders and go one big breath, two, even bigger breath, three, really the biggest breath you can take. Take out our respirator, hand it to the stuntman. The stuntman would then, with flippers on, go back behind the camera. I never knew where he went. I just prayed he was paying attention and wasn't too far away. And then you'd have to look up because they couldn't have bubbles above your head. So you had to wait for the bubbles to subside above your head. And then Val and I would start to beat each other up underwater. We both panicked once uh, and... Um, when you just think, I have got no air left in my body. This is, this is me without air. I've blown it all out. And the only thing you can do is reach your hand out towards where you hope the stuntman is, and you really hope he's paying attention and not sort of eyeing up the girl in the background or whatever it is, because you're absolutely relying on him with his flippers to come in, which is going to take five, six, eight seconds you know, to come in, and then you feel the respirator in your hand, and you get it to your mouth, and you breathe again, and then you know you're okay, and you're going to live. Um, 
But the worst bit of it came when they would go, uh, and that's lunch. Oh, great. That's great. That's great for the people on dry land above us. They can just go and queue up and get their food. That's great for the guys with flippers because they can flipper their way to the side of the pool. And Val and I are wearing lead boots with lead weights in our belts. And the only thing, the only way we can get out of there is walk to the side of the pool where there's a ladder and then gradually go up the ladder and get to dry land and take the respirator off. It took three weeks to shoot the three-minute section of that movie. In fact, I was in Australia uh, a few years ago. Uh, I got some time off, and um, my wife was there, and uh, they said, oh, why don't you go down to Jervis Bay? It's beautiful. It's lovely water. It's great bay. It's very peaceful. Uh, there's this great little village with lovely restaurants. And so, you know, we go down there, and we, we've got this uh, small apartment on the beach, which is idyllic, and we are alone miles away from Sydney and everything and work. And, and, but we go into the town to have dinner, and we have a dinner, just the two of us. And I had a couple of glasses of wine, and we eat some food. And my wife said, and we said, we should go. We should go and get back. I said, yeah, cool. Are you going to leave that glass of wine? She's up half drunk. Are you going to leave that on, your, on the table? She said, yeah, I don't really want it. But I said, okay, fine, I'll have it. I nicked it. Walked out the, the restaurant in Australia, Walked around the corner to the car, got in the car, drove around the corner, stopped by the police. Who wouldn't? They weren't looking for me. They weren't looking. It was just one of those general checks. Um, uh, they're just stopping every so often. Car. They happened to stop me, and they have this new sort of breathalyzer thing. Could you get out the car, please? So I got out of the car. They said, "Would you mind uh, breathing into this thing?" And now you don't have to breathe into it like blow into it like the old things. You just hold it away from you. You said, "Just count one to ten. So I go, one, two, three. He said, yes, so you've been drinking, haven't you? Yes. Well, yeah, I have. I've just been for a fabulous dinner around the corner. And he said, right, well, you know, it's against uh, every rule in America to drink drive. And currently you're over the limit. I'd, I didn't say, well, I just necked the last bit of wine. It's probably the thing. He said, I'm going to keep you here for 10 minutes, and then I'm going to breathalyze you again. If you are still over the limit, you're going to spend the night in the police station. And uh, when you go back to the UK, you're going to have to come back here and you're going to appear in court. And you are, this is serious stuff. You know, we are, we have, oh, Christ. So I get back in the car and I turn to my wife. I mean, this is actually serious. This is, I'm, I know I'm over the limit. I've got 10 minutes to not be, which is unlikely. I might have to spend the night in the police station. This is bad. And the guy comes over and said, uh, so what are you doing in, uh, in Australia? Oh. I don't want to say I'm an actor because then you go, oh, have I seen you in anything? And that ends up a can of worms, which you don't really. So I'm kind of loath to go down that alleyway. And my wife leans over and he goes, he's an actor. Why did you say that? You could have kept that bit quiet. We don't need to know that bit. Well, have I seen you in anything? No, here we go. I knew this was going to happen. Why don't you Google best ever underwater fight? What? What are you saying? I'm in enough trouble. Now you're telling him to Google or, uh, you know, he said, what is that? Just Google best underwater fight scene ever. Hi, Bruce, mate. Come on, the brief. You got your phone on you. Uh, this guy's an actor. He said, uh, he said, we should Google best ever. His wife said best ever underwater fight sequence. So they, they Googled best ever underwater fight sequence and, and there's Val and me. And he said, so what's this? I said, it's, it's a film called Top Secret. Maybe other guys have made, you know, airplane and naked gun. Uh, and he's, is, is that you? Yeah, that's me and that's Val Kilmer. 
And he says, so well, I just watch it. And yeah, yeah, just push play and watch it. And obviously I'm not drunk and, 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 and I'm talking very lucidly and going, well, then I pick up a bar stool and I smash it over. And the guy playing card, he's one of the producers. And, and then uh, Val kicks me off and I go flying back and then I pick up the gun and the, the, and the bartender and, and, and they watch the whole thing and they go, that is amazing. I've never seen the, that. I've got to go and watch the whole film now. So we're chatting away. And he said, what else have you done? So now I'm in, we end up talking for about 35 minutes. And at the end of it, he said, uh, Ryan, mate, so you've actually been here for quite a long time. Um, and uh, it's been very entertaining. But I'm going to have to uh, breathalyze you again. Uh, let me remind you that if you are over the limit, then I'm going to have to take you to a police station and you have to come back here and appear in court. So, And uh, so he held up the thing. But instead of holding up the thing like two inches away from my mouth, he held it like this far away. And instead of counting one to ten, he went, okay, go. One, two. Yeah, fine, mate. You're all right now. I want you to go home, park the car, do not drive again tonight. So, frankly, uh, I have to thank my wife for um, keeping me out of jail. I also have to think, thank uh, David, Jerry, and Jim for creating the best ever underwater fight sequence because it, it also kept me out of jail. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm curious what you have coming up next. Yeah, through covid Suddenly, there's no work. There's no theater. There's no film. There's no TV. There's no industry. No one will cover COVID insurance. I thought I'd, I'd done a, uh, a thing called ABC Murders with um, John Malkovich. I'd done a movie for US TV. I'd done another couple of things. And I thought, oh, this is actually, I'm not quite a role. This is quite nice. And then suddenly COVID hits and you, and you realize that you're flying over the edge of a precipice without a parachute and there's no safety net. And you think, oh, is, is, is that it? Is that the, the end of the world? The end of my career? The end of this industry? Will any of us ever work again? I've now just got my savings. Wow. And luckily, my wife doesn't, isn't in the film industry. Um, she works for a living, and she's a proper grown-up, and she's incredibly clever. So she was trying to save the world uh, from 7.30 in the morning to 7.30 at night. Um, seven days a week, never saw her. And uh, and I was doing a lot of gardening. Uh, the garden was great. Uh, and I was also painting a lot of pictures uh, because I thought, how can I, what can I do that's going to um, be the the valve for my creativity? Because I need something. And then I started painting pictures, which I'd, I've had 11 exhibitions before. And one of my paintings was on sale at the Tate. It was turned into a postcard. It was on sale at the Tate and National Portrait Gallery in London. And so I started painting pictures, like, and remarkably, without really thinking about it, I started painting pictures of lighthouses. And I thought on spits of land with waves and sky. And, and I thought, why am I, what is in my head? Why am I painting lighthouses? I mean, I do love Dennis, uh, uh, Edward Hopper. I love Dennis Hopper too, but Edward Hopper, the painter, you know, he did all those amazing paintings of lighthouses. But then I realized, that lighthouses are meant to save us and they're beacons of light to, to stop us going on the rocks. So maybe in some weird way, my subconscious was going, we need saving. And the light at the end of the beacon, the, 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 the great Gatsby green light across the harbor, the, we need something that will save us from this thing which has happened to the world. So I painted a lot. And then almost uh, a year ago or so, the industry began to work again. 
and became health well healthy uh you know healthy if you're a marvel uh character i guess i've done two films I've, i did the magic mike film with channing tatum and selma hayek of course it was with tandaway newton first and then i did a film called clico about uh with um hayley bennett um and a really good cast of actors and i haven't got a lot to do in either film actually but I'm delighted to be in both of them. And uh, Hayley Bennett is tremendous. And it's a film about the widow Clico, the, the the French woman who married into the Clico family. I play her dad, which is awful because I think I still look like I'm 37. Um, but I play her dad. Uh, she goes, no, uh, when her husband dies, played by Tom Sturridge, everyone says, well, presumably you're going to sell the vineyard. You know, you can't run it. You're a woman. You can't possibly run the vineyard. She goes, no, 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 I want to run the vineyard. I want to I want to continue my husband's work. I want to make champagne. And through her perseverance and bloody-mindedness, during the Napoleonic Wars of 18, it's the film set in 1806, she learns to make Verve Clicquot champagne, and which becomes Verve the Widow Clicquot. So uh, she makes uh, Clicquot champagne and makes it one of the greatest champagne houses in, in the world. And it's a wonderful story. And we filmed in France uh, in the rain and the mud, and we were wearing little Napoleonic slippers and stockings and breeches and slipping all over the place. But uh, it was. But you think, okay, we need films like that. We need films like Magic Mike, um, which I, you know, we need date night movies for people to go and and look at amazing fit dancers ripping their shirts off and doing almost impossible gymnastic dancing. Um, just as much as you need, uh, you know, the, the, the Marvel films. You know, I just hope Tom Cruise never stops making movies. I hope Spielberg never stops making movies. I hope Meryl Streep never stops working. Uh, I, I, I found it very sad seeing Val. I mean, thrilled that he's working and thrilled that he was uh, in, um, in the Maverick film. I mean, I thought he was going to die a few years ago. So it's great to see him still acting still giving it his best. And I have a great deal of fondness for him, even though, of course, his reputation is legendary for being impossible. When we finished shooting, we overran the movie, Top Secret, by about three weeks, and Val's apartment in Sloan Square in Chelsea was was up, and he couldn't elongate the rent because some other people were moving in. And he didn't want to move into a hotel, so he rang me up and said, Hey, Chris, can I, can I come to your place? Of course you can, Val. So he moved him, and he had a roll of money of like £50 notes, which was his overtime payment for the movie. It was quite a large roll of money, and he would hide it in different places, hide it around our, our, our apartment. We never knew where it was, which is really just as well. Not we would have obviously helped ourselves, but I didn't know where it was. And one day he came back, and I'd put the washing machine on and was just washing some clothes. I think I'd been to the gym or something. He said, Chris, the machine's on. He said, yeah, I'm just washing some gym stuff. He said, my money's in there. So after the wash, um, we, we opened the thing and we took the clothes out and we hung them up. And he then sat on the floor with the hairdryer drying his money. So I've actually laundered Val Kilmer's money. And anyway, at the end of the, and, and at the end of the movie, at the end of the final bit, oh, and, you know, we had other things. I went to Jerry Zucker at, at near the end of the movie. I said, you're missing a scene. He said, what? I said, yeah, you're missing interior cow. He said, oh, my God, you're right. So when we were shooting the underwater fight sequence, 
they built a sort of A-frame and they put a big bit of canvas and they put me, had me reverse into this A-frame. And then Jerry Zucker uh, was the arse. So, um, well, I'm the arse. I'm the arsehole at the back of the cab. But the arse you see in shot is actually Jerry Zucker. And then the camera was just at the front shooting past Jerry's arse to my face for when I get sucked off by a calf and then mounted by a bull. And I think I have a gun with me. And I think I say things like, take me to the whatever I say. So we were shooting all of that. And there's one little light in there. And, and then he said, he said, okay, Chris, now you get sucked off by the cow. I said, Jerry, my mother is going to see this film. I can't do, I can't give my sucked off face. That's embarrassing. My mother is going to see this. Just shut up and get on with it. So all of that's in the movie. I shouldn't have opened my big mouth and suggested interior cow. Uh, at the end of the movie, Val uh, goes, and he doesn't, uh, and, and we leave on really good, I mean, he had his issues with David, Jerry, and, and, and Jim, or they had their issues with him. You could see the embryonic Val Kilmer, which became The Doors and Willow and all those nightmare stories of the saint and, and Val's antics. But, you know, I mean, what, what is wonderful about Val like when he did that movie Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, long time ago. When he, I think he was, I think he was a, he wasn't the main part in the film. He was a sort of character. And you thought, Val, that's what you love best. You love being a character actor. You don't particularly want to be the main guy. You don't want to have to carry the movie on your shoulders. You like being the iceberg. You like being. The, the whoever it was in Kiss, 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 Bang, Bang. You like being the smaller role where you can bring some acting talent to it, which he's got in spades, rather than being the number one character on the call sheet who's got to carry the movie on his shoulders. We finished the movie, and, uh, and, and Val goes off. And I said, Val, before you go, you know, normally when you stay in someone's house, you know, you buy a bottle of wine or maybe a bunch of flowers or... Something just to say, thanks. You, you, you've done nothing. You've stayed in our house for, I think it was going to be four days and it ended up like five weeks. Um, and, you know, was it Oscar Wilde who said, you know, house guests like fish go off after four days? Yeah, it was, he was off. And um, anyway, he left. And would, uh, the movie opened in California, in Los Angeles. And, and I was asked to go over to L.A., to do some press for it. And I flew into LAX and there was, there was a guy there with a big sign with a Paramount Mountain on it with my name on it. Fuck yes. This is better than having a chair with your name on. I've got a car with a thing and a, and a mountain and Paramount pictures. Uh, and the next day I got driven into Paramount Studios and they said, well, what do you want to do? You've got about 10 days or whatever. We need you to do some press, but you got 10 days before, a week before the movie ends. And they put us up in a house in Malibu. And I said, well, can I get rid of the driver but keep the car? And I really want to go up Route 1. I really want to go up through Santa Barbara. I want to go up to San Francisco. And they said, yes, you can do that on one condition. Okay, what's the condition? That you drive back on Route 5 because it's direct and fast. I said, fine, I can do that. So uh, but before we set off on this road trip up Quite easily, the most beautiful road in the in, in the world. If anyone has not been to California, go to California, rent a car, drive up Route One from San Francisco, from uh, Los Angeles, 
all the way up to San Francisco, eat clam chowder, go to Hearst Castle, look at Santa Barbara, look at Carmel, sit and watch the ocean, watch them. It's spectacular. And then come back on Route 5. Anyway, we threw a dinner party. Lots of people came. There were 10, 12 people for dinner. But we were a bit nervous cooking. And, um, and Val was the first to arrive. And he came in with two huge boxes, big boxes. And he said, this is to apologize for being such a dick in London. Uh, this is for your girlfriend. And it was the most beautiful red dress. And he said, the Christmas is for you. And it was the most beautiful shirt. So I won't have a word. I mean, I've, I've heard lots of words said against Val. But I won't have a word said against him. I'm immensely fond of him. And we had a great fun time making that movie together. Mr. Villiers, thank you so much for your time. This has been wonderful. That's okay. I can't believe it's true That I just met a girl like you Each night I'm all alone My heart's an empty home Standing there would be my only prayer If you could ever know how much I need you so Come make my dreams come true I'll give my love to you, baby, please Spend this night with me You've had such an interesting and varied career. I mean, an author journalist you know you paid your own way over to vietnam to cover the war then you come home and you become a filmmaker or were you a filmmaker before you went to the war i was a wannabe filmmaker I had my own 15 millimeter camera but basically i got bored with life here so i decided to head for the closest war but you talk about the very nature of careers probably no time in my life was as varied as when I was doing Top Secret, because I was brought into this project on a whim. There's a guy in Hollywood named Jeff Katzenberg. He's still around. He was one of the most powerful guys at a very early age. He was the head of production at Paramount in those days that he went on after that to take over DreamWorks and Disney and a bunch of other places. But I had had a script that was based on my experiences in Vietnam, a thing called Laughing War. And Hollywood has these kind of legendary scripts that everybody tries to read. They haven't been produced, and they're the hot scripts that haven't been produced. It just turned out that I had that kind of script uh, that was in a laughing war, which was going nowhere, by the way. I'd been taken down to Hollywood by Dustin Hoffman. At the time, he was at his most powerful, and Columbia Pictures rented me a house in Malibu, all kinds of stuff that's almost out of the old fantasy days of Hollywood. After that ended, I was left with a script that was sort of on again, off again. And Katzenberg read the script and called me out of the blue and said, I need you to talk to these guys, these friends of mine. And I didn't know what he was talking about. I didn't have a clue. So I went in to meet him and explained to me that he had three of the hottest talents in Hollywood at the time. Jerry Zucker, David Zucker, and Jimmy and he said they had this little movie that everybody knew about called Airplane, and it was the moneymaker for Paramount. And it cost next to nothing, 
and Paramount had made such a fortune on it that Jerry, Jim, and David, after a year, after it had come out, sent out embossed cards, like invitation cards, all properly done with, with, with the proper script and everything that said, Jerry Zucker, Damon Zucker, and Jim Eggles wish to announce that their movie Airplane has made so much money that Paramount Pictures can no longer hide it from them. That was the basis for Jerry, Jim, and David's aura in those days, but they had a problem. They were trying to do a spy comedy, and they were, they were going nowhere. They just had a collection of jokes, and there was no plot. There was nothing. And Katzenberg said to me, your script has got humor in it. It's got plot in it. Will you go in and work with these guys? But I had just been in Hollywood, like maybe nine, ten months or something. So I thought, okay, what the hell? So I went to meet those guys, and we just hit it off. They are wonderful people, wonderful human beings. None of them had any interest in the Hollywood traffic. They all drove old cars. They weren't part of the Hollywood scene. I just liked them right away. So we agreed that I would join the team. I would be the fourth member of a trio, as it were. But there's one little problem I had, was that I was doing a real-life documentary up here, a major undercover project and that was actually exposing the real-life spies from the Soviet KGB. So I was mixing these two worlds, reality and fiction. And not only that, reality and comedy fiction. In the most bizarre way, it was it was really difficult to stay sane sometimes. I would be up here sometimes, and we would take on undercover sting operations. Give an example, we were trying to get to what they called illegals, who were Russian spies who had been sent over to America or Canada using false names and false identities and were almost like sleepers. They were here until they were needed, and then they had to do whatever the Russians over in Moscow wanted them to do. So we were running around exposing these guys. On another time, there was a guy who was part of what was called Department V. Department V was part of espionage and sabotage and all the dirty works that you could imagine. And this guy had been sent over in North America to the Midwest and parts of Canada. And so we set up an elaborate sting operation, and I trapped this guy on camera. He didn't know he was being filmed, and he basically admitted, more or less, quite quite shocked and reluctantly, that he was part of he was a spy for the Russians. So, okay, that was fun. But <laughs> then I would be sitting in a law firm boardroom with the three Hollywood guys, Jerry Zucker, David Zucker, and Jim Lambers, writing a fictional comedy script. And this went on for several glorious, insane months. And it was one of the most bizarre periods of my life where everything collided. It got even crazier because the Hollywood part of it was glorious. As I said, we were working out of their lawyer's board on a street called San Vicente Boulevard in West Los Angeles, uh, not far from where I live most of the time or part of the time in, in Santa Monica, California. And so every morning I would drive to this lawyer's office, the three of the four of us would march into the boardroom, close the door mostly, 
And we would sit down and there was a ritual and it went on for about four months up until we had a script. And um, it would start with us uh, talking about various things. And uh, Jim could be talking about problems with his old Volkswagen or, or Jerry Zucker with his old Volvo. As I said, these guys were definitely not Hollywood sheep cool, the kind of guys that I did not want to hang up. Then David Zucker would have to make sure that he had organized all the raisins in his bowl of raisin bread, which he had to have every morning before we could start. All the raisins had to be organized in a perfect circle. And then he would start eating and we could start. So, okay. And that was the first hour. Then we would come up with all these jokes. And we would be laughing and howling at how great the jokes were and what geniuses we were. And by about 3.30 or 4 o'clock, we would stagger out of the boardroom past all of these lawyers in their offices who had heard this kind of zoo that was going on in the boardroom. And, and we would go past these guys and these, these lawyers who'd be lucky, like the animals were escaping from the zoo. And, and they thought we were just completely demented, which we probably were. So that was the finish of the day. But we'd come back the next morning and we'd look over everything we had done that we told ourselves we were such geniuses on, and it was so brilliant, and we were totally despondent in the first hour because we just said to ourselves, this is crap. This is absolutely appalling. How can, how can any idiot come written this stuff? <laughs> so this, was, this went on and on and on. And it was like always two steps forward, one step and maybe more backwards, and we lurched finally toward a screenplay. That was the framework for how Top Secret became a movie. I know with something like Airplane or even with Police Squad, they were based on other things. There were things like Zero Hour or M Squad, where you could really kind of take those existing properties and hang the jokes on them. Were there existing properties like that for Top Secret, or is it just kind of more of a mishmash of spy thrillers and Elvis movies? It was partly spy movie tropes, partly spy movie cliches that they would take. Those guys were geniuses at picking out what you could parody. And they would come up with stuff that the rest of the world had just accepted as being perfect for a spy movie, and they would find that one spot to get the scalpel with. Things like the guy looking through, through a spyglass, and he's got this huge eye through the spyglass, but when he takes the glass away, he's got this huge eye anyway. I mean, they would find things that they could just parody. And it was more airplane had specific movies and specific references to those movies. This was more of, I'm not going to say a, a matched up version of everything, but they didn't have one particular movie or one or two movies that they were parodying. It was more the cliches, what had become cliches by movies. Not only are you doing that, but then it's a musical as well. Are there rules around when the songs have to be in place, or how do you figure out where those musical breaks are? That shifted all the time, and it shifted even more. It shifted even more when they got overseas to London, where they shot this thing, and... um Obviously, Val Kilmer, uh, it partly was what Val Kilmer had the, had the ability to do. 
at that time, Beltrummer was not really a star. He was he he was kind of like the kid who played Elvis. You know, he he had come out of nowhere, and um, I always remember just before they left to take off to go to film the thing, Jerry and David shared a house in the Westwood area of Los Angeles near UCLA. And they had a party just before they were leaving. And I always remember Bell Kilmer showed up with his new girlfriend, Cher. We all thought, oh God, here goes Hollywood. We're really in Hollywood now. Actually, another memory that I have, Mike, is that once the film was done and it premiered and it came up, on the first weekend, I went to a theater in Westwood and I was there with David Zucker. And the theater was packed. And it everything worked the way that we had hoped it would work. And but I remember David being despondent. And it and I said, What is the problem? Already Variety had called it as the number one movie of the week in terms of box office growth. But the problem was it was nowhere near as high as their play. And <laughs> So David David thought his career was over, uh, even though he had the number one movie of the week. He was finished. It was terrible. I always remember thinking, "Man, I'm a long way from Toronto with these guys." I mean, you know, we would with we would have been thrilled of the guys that I grew up with professionally in Toronto. We would have thrilled to have the number one movie, you know. But also, the irony is too, is that Top Secret has become truly a cult film. I mean. Weirdly, the BBC named it as one of the top 100 comedies of all time. I I couldn't believe this, but it's become a real cult favorite, and you know that in Hollywood because of residuals. You know that if a film is working all these years later, and there's no there, and the residuals are pouring in, or I'm going to say still cutting in, then you know something is happening on that film, and it just keeps going from. The way that you're talking, I'm thinking that you didn't go to England with them. Is that correct? No, I was busy. I was. I only had a certain amount of time. I forget what I was working on right after that, but I had to come back to Toronto partly, partly because we had to finish. By the way, this this film that we made in Toronto, you can find it all over YouTube. It's called the KGB Connections, and this film is all over YouTube. I had to come back for, for, I don't know, press or publicity or something. So I did not go to England. But it was interesting. Um, all these years later, I'm still working with those guys. I'm working with Jerry Zucker and his wife right now. I, I, you know, it was one of those things that it just keeps on going right down through the years. What are you working on with them, if you don't mind me asking? They brought me a project, which they didn't know if it was a screenplay, a documentary, what it was, and I decided to turn it into a book. It's, it's a true story. It's the only nonfiction book I've ever written about a guy who goes into war zones, save, bring out of war zones, wild animals in zoos. This guy, his name is Amir Khalil, and he goes into places like Aleppo and Mosul and Sudan and sometimes Gaza, places like that, to save lions and tigers. And comes up through uh, all sorts of war and and Al Qaeda and ISIS and all this stuff with a caravan of light and tigers. So we are we are just in the process of buttoning 
up the book that I just finished writing about that, and we will go on to the next step. They leave. They go over to England. You see them at the premiere. You're there at the premiere. How different or similar is that movie that you see to what was that final draft before they left? This is going to sound kind of weird and paradoxical. It was very different, but also very much the same. By that, I mean that as we were writing the script, we would change it around. It was almost like pieces at a kaleidoscope sometimes, you know? And my job is to keep the forward momentum of the story, such as it was, going. The script with all the scenes, we were shuffling the scenes back and forth. I don't even remember what the end script was like. We had shuffled things around so much. I remember there were some things that were different, but most of the scenes, almost all the scenes were the same in some way or another. The one thing I'm not sure about is the exact order, you know, because they would change it. I spoke with Jim and David the other night, and they're still really disappointed by Top Secret, and I can't figure out why, unless it's just the box office or what it is. What What's your take on this? It was shocking to them. If I remember correctly, the box office in that week, and this is going back many years, of course, was $6 million, which was a medium for hit movie, but in that week, it, it just happened to be the number one movie. They had scored so easy. They had they had got used to this colossal success. It, it's hard to exaggerate this the success of airplane. They were the boy geniuses. They were the boy wonders. And it's hard to exaggerate their not only their their kind of aura in those days, but they gave colossal disappointment. When it didn't gross the same as Airplane. Airplane was a freak of nature. Airplane caught the zeitgeist. Airplane was just... Airplane, you'll probably know more about this than I will, but the grosses of Airplane were much more than top secret. But they couldn't understand why they didn't have exactly the same kind of kind of commercial hit. And like I said, I was, I was sitting there wondering what their problem was. You have written so many different types of things. I mean, you've got the clown murders, which sounds funny, but it's more of a thriller, I would say. And then you've got things like, um, well, you mentioned the KGB movie, pretty serious stuff. And then you've got things like the, the Second Civil War, which I found hilarious, but then also super scary, especially in 2022 as I'm watching this. And it's just like, how do you go back and forth between all the different types of material that you're working on? They what attracts me are the two faces of drama, tragedy and comedy, and the old Shakespearean the the two faces, uh, one one smiling broadly, the other frowning severely. I love flipping those two. Um, the screenplay that I wrote, which got me to Jerry Jim and David, as I said, was called Laughing War, based on my first novel. And it was about a comedian work in Vietnam. And I I had lived that. I, I stayed in a flea bag hotel that was it was me and the cockroaches in the room. But on the ground floor there was a talent agent. And the talent agent was bringing in with the guy right under the horse belt, right of the old time almost vaudeville guy, who would bring in these acts, including these broken down comedians. And to me, that was the story. That was that was 
I, and I use that for a book and then a screenplay, skipping those two. Um, and I love situations like that. So when you talk about things like second scene war, climbers, laughing war, there's another one, the Commissar's Report, which has almost been a movie about 10 times in Hollywood. And one day, they, they both combine the absolute seriousness of life with the glorious absurdity of it. You know, so I kind of go from one to the other and try and flip them. I do have to uh, commend you so much on the Second Civil War. I rewatched that one today, and wow, so good. And like I said, just, uh, I mean, a- as I'm going to lunch and hearing the January 6th committee <laughs> stuff and then coming back and finishing the second half of the movie. It's interesting you mentioned that one, like, that because I know this is off topic, but that film for HBO came out during a change of management, a very unsettling, very fractious change of management. And it got, I'm not going to say it got buried, but it never got the release it should have had. The odd thing about that, though, is I can't tell you how much I get asked about that and how much I get queries about it and and even and went on and on. I mean, it has the old Hollywood word, like, you know, it's still up there. So other than the, the book that you're working on, what else is keeping you busy? I have, at this point in my career, I managed to get involved in the most difficult film I've ever had to get going. I've been working for about four years on a film that we want to shoot out of Toronto, but based in Cuba, a movie based in Havana. And every single thing that could be thrown up as basically constantly, as we were about to get it going, has constantly created major problems. First one was the Treasury Department rules under Trump changed from what they had been uh, a few years earlier under Obama, and it was pretty much a crime to have any money going into a desk in Cuba for Americans. So that threw us for a loop. Then, of course, COVID. Everybody got into COVID. And, and there are a lot of movies made at COVID, but Cuba had one of the most severe, one of the most draconian lockdowns of any place on Earth, except for maybe Australia. And it was impossible for us to make the film while the lockdown was finished. The lockdown was actually removed about this time last year. And so we were all set to go and we were ready to go in February or March. And, and we, no, I, yeah, we're in February, and we got a call from the financiers, a Hollywood outfit, who rather sheepishly and embarrassed and angry said the money has vanished, and we wanted to know why has the money vanished. It turns out the money, their money, which was coming west, was coming from Russia. So that little thing called the Ukraine War rolls all the all the channels, all the banking and the financing and everything else. So that hit the skids then. We are putting it together. And they realize this is too long-winded for you. We are putting it together now and expect to be shooting it next year. Are you already working on a making-of documentary? I don't even want to see it. I don't know. It's been hard enough living it. It has been insane. But I'm always working on, on projects. But then I have another book that will be coming out as well as the one I just told you about. I'm just putting the finishing touches on another novel. So I kind of go back and forth from one thing to the other all the time. 
Is the best place for people to keep up with you your website, martinburke.com? I haven't updated it much lately, but yeah, I need to update it. There's a whole bunch of other stuff that's got to be put on there. I'm kind of bad. I, I, I should really do that. But yeah, for now, I will be updating that soon because there'll be a lot more to go on. Mr. Burke, thank you so much for your time. It was so great talking with you. Thank you, Mike. And if there's any clarifications or further questions, let me know. I'd, I'm happy to do this for certain projects, this being one of them, you know, because I'm very fond of this crazy movie, which basically was my real introduction into Hollywood. So I'm very fond of it. So if I can do anything for you, just let me know. So I know that you guys actually grew up all together. Your fathers worked together, if memory serves. When did you decide to actually start the Kentucky Fried Theater? What ages were you and what brought that about? So I'm three years older than David and six years older than Jerry. We knew each other as kids, but, you know, back then, that's a pretty big difference in age. We didn't really connect until what year was it, like 69? It was 1971, or, or you, it was 71 we met outside the uh, my dad's office building. And we, and we just ran into each other because we were, David was a construction expediter and I was a insurance adjuster. At, at the time, and we ran into each other outside a building that his dad owned and kind of said, what are you up to? I really wanted to, you know, make movies, but, you know, that that's not possible growing up in Milwaukee. So, uh, we, you know, I, I had done a short film in college, and I described that to Jim, and Jim had an idea for a movie that he described to me, and so we said, well, you know, we'll get together and uh, you know, and, and and do something, and I think that was it. If that then you said shortly thereafter, you said, "Well, and I have access to this videotape equipment." That that was it. I I, I thought, you know, we probably wouldn't have gone on from there. <laughs> that was, but until I I went down to Chicago and saw this uh, this show consisting of a it was a videotape show running about seventy minutes. One of my dad's friends had some videotape equipment, and so he offered to lend it to us. So that really was the start of everything. Which sounds like not a big deal, but in 1971, nobody had access to video equipment. You know, today, everybody's making movies on their phone all day long. But back then, nobody was doing that kind of stuff. So we really, when we started to get together, there was no competition. And we had the luxury of time to kind of figure out a voice and how we wanted to approach it all. I mean, that probably wasn't even VHS or anything. That was probably, what, like three-quarter or something? No, it was reel-to-reel, big, uh, huge Sony tape deck. That's what it was. Gigantic machines and then gigantic cameras. And But we were thrilled 
because you know we could record stuff and then erase it and it was sound and picture and everything so. and we could even edit yeah we could edit jim you were an insurance adjuster were you like the walter neff of your time well i like to think so i worked for a company called american family insurance where you can get all your family's protection under one roof and i, I got a job there because when I was through a school. I didn't own a car. So I went and looked for jobs in the newspaper and said, if you become an insurance adjuster, you get a car. You have to drive around to accident sites, interview uh, people who were involved in accidents and witnesses and whatnot. So it came, the job came with the car. So I applied and got it. And I, it was a lot of fun. That job mostly wound up being kind of find people who are faking injuries. So I'd go sneak around trying to get pictures of, of them playing tennis or re-roofing their houses or yeah, that kind of stuff. So you've, you've got access to this video equipment. You're making your own kind of comedy skits, these things. When do you say, we've got something here, we really need to act on this and, and take it to the next level? Jim and I were you know, really doing the experimenting with the, with the video equipment in Milwaukee. And my brother Jerry and our friend Dick Chudnow were also working in Madison. Jerry at that time was a junior at, in, in college in Madison. And uh, they were doing some videos up there too, uh, as well as they had a, a Dick Chudnow had a stage company. And they were doing improvisation. So somewhere along the line, a line we said, well, we have, we think we have enough material for uh, a video if we combine it with live stage skits. So that's what we put together. And we, and we, we rented a, uh, a space in, uh, in Madison, you know, uh, above a cafe. And, uh, and, and Jim and I went up on weekends and, uh, and together with Jerry and Dick, we hammered and nailed a theater together with, you know, a hundred, well, probably with 50 chairs, the small space. I don't even remember rehearsing the show though, uh, but we were set to open. And then, you know, days before the show was supposed to open, the building uh, inspector shut us down because the owner of the cafe had neglected to uh, apply for a permit. So, yeah. So. We, we, the union, the University of Wisconsin Student Union kind of came to the rescue and let us use a space in the union. And so we could put the show together. And that's, that's where our first show was. And, and we really hadn't rehearsed and we, we figured we'd do two shows that night, but it's favorable. We ran out, we ran out of material after 20 minutes. Yeah, because we had never rehearsed. It was a disaster. Yeah, so we, we were kind of panicked. We didn't know what to do, so we, we called it intermission <laughs> after 20 minutes. So, and, and then during intermission, Jerry and Jim and I debated how much money to refund because we were just going to up. But uh, Dick was, you know, he was more, you know, well-versed in theater. He and uh, uh, the girl in the show, Lisa Davis, then did a whole improv show for like 30 minutes after that. 
And and that was very funny, really good. And the, I think the audience came away liking it. But I think we were uh, kind of uh, disheartened by the. But on Monday, we got a good review in the paper. Yeah, somebody raved about it. So we decided to keep going. And then, you know, we rented another place, Shakespeare and Company, uh, a bookstore. So was the first review that guy, you know, had a good week? Was that him? No, no. That was a different review. That was at Shakespeare and Company on the Regis Theater. Yeah. Do you remember? I don't, I, you'll remember that review better than not. The actual verbiage. We opened the show in, you know, the, the, another show, in, you know, this time we had rehearsed and it was a pretty good show. So, and, and we got a review by some guy who said, I had really good work week. I, some really good dope. I bought some super chicks. And the best part of the week was I saw Kentucky Fried Theater. So that's, that puts you in, you know, 1971, where, where people In Madison. How did you find the other people that ended up performing with you? Dick had them in, in his improv group. That was already going, I think, at the time that Jim and Jerry and I decided to, you know, put together a theater. The style of your guys' comedy, it's, I mean, th- there are precedents i've seen other things kind of like it this kind of absurdist thing that you're doing but i've never seen anything exactly like what you guys do what were some of your biggest influences when you were coming up well i I would say mad magazine was a big uh, influence because you know they they i think they taught us that it was okay to poke fun at serious things and you know it's kind of a textbook in uh you know spoof or satire whatever there used to be a column in Mad called Scenes We'd Like to See. They'd spoof a show or something or other, and they'd said in each column, they'd, leading up to the end, everything would be done pretty straight. The actors would be pretty straight. The scenery would be pretty straight. Everything would be pretty straight. And then finally, in the last column, they'd kind of pull the rug out from everything and make their joke. And for us, the influence on us was that's a good way to approach comedy. You know, set it up the way people are used to seeing it in a serious movie, and then we can pull the rug out from under it at the end. When do you say, okay, we think we can make this if we go out to Hollywood and start writing and directing out there? I mean, it's that's a pretty big move. We had done the show for a year. It seemed like, yeah, probably a year in Madison, and it was packed you know, and we kind of used it as a way to kind of refine whatever we were doing. So we fine-tuned things, and we had a, two really good shows in Madison, and we figured we could combine them. Audience, we didn't think audience could be that different in, you know, any big city, whether it be L.A., Chicago, or New York, or wherever. So because we were performing something new and it was kind of, uh, it was different than uh, whatever was being done at that time. There were some other groups like the committee and the, the Pitchell players and Second City. Those other groups had a sort of political bent to them. But we instinctively stayed away from politics. That just wasn't our thing. And the other thing about why California is we had a goal. We wanted to be on The Tonight Show. That was our life plan. There were some sketch groups on the Tonight Show, 
And we thought, well, we could do that. We had material not really similar to what they were, the sketch groups were doing on TV at the time. But, you know, we certainly thought we could do as well. We figured if we could just be in The Tonight Show, then we could go on to fame and fortune immediately. So we did move out. We loaded up a U-Haul truck, made the move, started another theater in, in L.A., which was on, in West L.A. on Pico Boulevard near uh near not not too far from ucla so you know we, we're attracting a college crowd and, and a city crowd and uh really within months we're asked to be on the tonight show the building where we had the theater david had made a and and dick had made a trip out to la a couple months earlier and found it and it was a vacant dilapidated drug rehabilitation center. And so we rented the building for $300 a month and renovated it and put in the theater and seats and a control room with all the technical stuff. And we lived upstairs in an apartment upstairs, right above the theater, which was very convenient. And at first, when we opened the theater, started doing shows, the audiences were so small that after the show, we would take them upstairs and give them a tour of our apartment. I think it was before the show. Was it before? Yeah, because we wanted to loosen everybody up so that because we were embarrassed performing for, you know, 13 people. On a good night. I mean, that must have been quite a shot in the arm to be able to perform on The Tonight Show. We, we were very excited about it. I mean, I don't know how much good it did. I mean, the the... The audience laughed pretty hard in the studio, but it didn't really come off that well on TV because I think there was more suited for, you know, live stage audience. Johnny Carson was off for the night. So Joey Bishop was the guest host and his introduction went something like, well, I've never seen these kids. I understand they're from Milwaukee. And I'm not sure how good they are. They must be scared shitless. Please call them and take you for a theater. That was our, our national debut. I mean, for years when we went back to Milwaukee after that, we had to apologize to people for staying up late that night. That stay up two nights. We got bumped the first night. What kind of material did you guys do? Dick and Lisa did sketch we called Adam and Eve, and then we did a what we called the right guard ballet. Jerry did his fried egg and Jim did a shaving commercial. You know, just there's about six different little, little blackouts. Jerry used to do this fried egg thing where we'd just say in, in the theater, he'd say a fried egg and he'd be sort of crouched in a ball, kneeling in the center of the stage. And then he'd go and he'd open up and pretend he was an egg frying. And he'd tell Runs around a little, then he tossed himself over, and that was that bit. So maybe you worked on stage. Other than running the theater and obviously getting on Carson, I mean, what else were you guys working at at that time? Because I know eventually you would get at least one writing gig. I'm so curious about this Big John, Little John show that you're credited for. Oh, yeah. That was uh, a guy who actually we had contacted to read our script. We had wrote, written the script to Airplane. Uh, this guy, was uh, Lloyd Schwartz, uh, was the producer of Big John, Little John, a, 
a children's show. So I think he felt sorry for us. So and and so he hired us to uh, write an episode, which was, you know, not not really that fun for us because it, it wasn't our kind of uh, material. It was like doing a college term paper. The show was like if there was even some sort of rating that was softer than G rating, that's what the show. I mean, it was anything but the kind of stuff we would we would write. So we handed in the uh, the script, and we we had buried a line in there, and we got a really quick phone call from Lloyd, and he wasn't happy with it because uh, we had put in a line. Valerie rubbed the ruler in her crotch and asked little John to smell it, and he said, "Guys, you don't you don't realize that the the." Uh, this stuff uh, goes right to the head of the network, uh, the head of somebody, you know, and uh, and and the show could get canceled from this. And then later he told us that the guy, the head of the of the comedy division or whatever, was a priest. So this was probably wasn't going to work real well. Yeah, when we were doing the theater, the way we would get material to spoof to, for the theater would be to leave the tape machine on all night. And because that's when this really the stupidest commercials, shows and stuff were on TV and is stuff that was easiest to spoof. So one morning in the early 70s, we got to work and looked at what we had recorded the night before. And we recorded this movie called Zero Hour, which was a 1957 melodrama written by Arthur Haley. Stein Dina Andrews and and uh, what was the Linda Darling yeah. Hayden. Yeah. And um and it was perfect. It was it was a story of a guy who was a veteran with PTSD who had a and he had been a pilot and he had to chase his girlfriend onto an airplane and she was a stewardess and eventually he wound up having to land the plane in order to get the girl back, his girlfriend back. So it was the model for the for airplane, and eventually we got the rights to to zero hour. We bought the rights for twenty five hundred dollars, and we wrote it as a comedy. And it, it was the story was so good. It was as though someone had given us a Christmas tree, and all we had to do is hang some ornaments on it. That movie is so much like what you're talking about with that last panel, because it's so much like watching the movie now, watching Zero Hour now, I fill in the punchlines from your plane. You know, <laughs> you give me this, they give us the setup and then you give me the punchline. Exactly. It's amazing. Right. Yeah. And by 74, I want to say Groove Tube would come out. I know Loose Shoes is later. How does Kentucky Fried Movie come out? How do you actually make that deal to make this movie? We put our own money in making 10 minutes of it since it was, you know, the movie was consisted of, I think, 22 different sketches. We did four of them. And I think we put in about $25,000 of our own money. John Landis agreed to, he was, it was before he did Blues Brothers or uh, Animal House. We got to be friendly with him and he agreed to direct the 10 minutes for free. And Bob Weiss, who's a, uh, a producer who we worked with for many years after that agreed to produce the 10 minutes for free. So that was a big step in the right direction. 
we ran into an old friend of ours from Milwaukee named Kim Jorgensen, who, uh, you know, loved the 10 minutes and he, he showed it and he ran the new art theater in West LA and he ran it, uh, one Saturday night, the audience loved it. And then he showed it to his exhibitor friends in San Francisco and they agreed to finance the feature. It would be a few years after that before Airplane comes out. What is going on in the interim? Are you guys still running the theater? Are you just solely trying to pitch things? I mean, what's that period of time between? We closed the theater uh, as soon as we made the deal for a Kentucky Fried movie. And even before that, we had recast the show. And there is, we weren't in the show anymore. And um, that gave us more time to, to, to write. write. Yeah, goof off. But we couldn't sell that early version of Airplane, so this is when we decided to do a Kentucky Fried movie, and it's a good thing we did because we, I think we kind of learned how to direct from Landis, and then went back after Kentucky Fried movie and rewrote Airplane, and then uh, you know took that out again, and it was it was turned down by every studio except Paramount. Michael Eisner was then the head of Paramount. He, he liked the script, and so he kind of saved us. How did the version that we see, how did that differ from that earlier version? Oh, uh, it, it, the first version actually had commercials in the minute, you know, that it broke for commercials. What was it? For, what would, I think it was called Kentucky Fried Airplane. No, actually, the first version of Airplane we called The Late Show, as if it were experience of watching a, uh, a late night TV movie. And so and we had commercials. So, and we used the airplane story as this thing. So, uh, and then we decided that we didn't need the commercials and we, you know, we, we started, then we called it Kentucky fried airplane. It may have been called Kentucky fried airplane when it got to Paramount. I, I don't really remember once we got it to Paramount, they took us through a rewrite. So we did extensive rewrites, added scenes, and refined everything. For sure, we took out the commercials. We added all the flashbacks. That was gone. Oh, all the flashbacks came in from that? Yeah. I mean, of course, you guys didn't know this, but in 1980, and now compared to you know 2022, putting in parodies of like Jaws and Saturday Night Fever, I mean, these are classics now. And it's so smart. It's not like, you know, you're doing like the thing that just came out the previous weekend. I mean, there's, it's so solid with these, with the flashbacks of what you're doing with these. I think it was the first time that uh, a movie had, in, you know, went out and just spoofed, you know, various individual specific movies. I, I don't think Mel Brooks had done that or whoever else was, you know, it's, uh, but Mel Brooks did spoof movies, you know, he spoofed. Frankenstein or Westerns. Uh, but I don't know if he went and did specific movies. Did specific references, yeah. I mean, I know there's a few scenes in Young Frankenstein that are very similar to Bride and the original Frankenstein, but Frankenstein, sorry. It, it's not nearly that rapid pace. And that rapid pace of jokes as well is just wild. I mean, the rewatchability of your material is always wonderful. That's truly wonderful a year. And that really came out of the fact that we were live stage performers who were very uncomfortable being stage performers. 
So we were doing a live theater and something didn't work to buy and, or we'll refine it, but we're moving on. And so that pace from our live stage show is kind of what led to the pace in the movies. We found that, but when we were on stage, we found that it's easier to keep an audience laughing than to start them up from scratch again. So it's, it's very much of a, you know, momentum. You know, once people were laughing, just keep them laughing. And don't. there's no reason to stop that pace. I've heard you guys talk about the rules and your rules of comedy. Did you ever write those down? Are those available someplace? Or are they just kind of these unwritten things that you abide by and try not to break? Interestingly, or maybe not so interestingly, we are in just about done writing a book about how we made airplane. And, and the rules are in the book. And it's supposed to come out, when's it supposed to like next fall? In the fall, in fall of 23. I know you guys had directed and you had directed actors on stage. Were you ever intimidated by the level of actors that you're getting for something like an airplane? Not intimidated. It's just, I think we were in awe of all these guys because, uh, you know, we weren't too many years out of Milwaukee. You know, Milwaukee is a place where things come to and you don't, you don't see a lot of celebrities. Uh, and, and when you do run into a celebrity, when you're in Hollywood, it's just like, and it still gets me in our, like, I'm still kind of uh, wowed by the whole thing. But uh, airplane, you know, we just, you know, Robert Zach comes in and I remember I was just surprised that he wasn't wearing a double-breasted suit and carrying a submachine gun, you know, but you have to remember these people, they're just actors. Uh, and Zach, rather than being this humorless Elliot Ness guy, he was just joking. He was always telling jokes and laughing and just a really a fun, fun guy to be around. Because all, all those guys, we grew up on those guys. They were the, you know, the, the hallmarks of 50s serious TV stuff. You know, Peter Graves was in Fury and stack the FBI and, and all that stuff. So they they were our kind of childhood heroes. And to suddenly be sitting around a table with them was, it was pretty cool. And the other, you know, um, certainly meeting Kareem was huge. I mean, we'd been tremendous fans of his ever since he was at UCLA. And the other one we were talking about the other day is both David and Jerry and I, but from different angles, were big fans of Ethel Merman. Yeah, for some reason. <laughs> that was cool. When we cast her, there's, there's Ethel Merman on the set. It was all fun for us. Did you ever have any troubles with the actors as far as having to play things straight? Were they trying to mug and be funny versus just playing it as deadly serious as it, they eventually did? I think there was a certain learning curve that had to be passed through by, by the actors. But, you know, we told them when we first met them, we just, we wanted them to play it as though they didn't know they were in a comedy. They caught on pretty quick. At one point, I mean, Lloyd Bridges was trying to make sense out of his lines. And I think we, we quickly, you know, disavowed him of, of that. Lloyd was an actor and he believed in character and character art. And what's the guy feeling now? And how many? And 
All we wanted to do is say the lines. We never went there. We did, we said, you know, that's what actors do. Once he figured that out, he was great. I love the story of how you had to teach Robert Stack to talk more like the John Biner impersonation of Robert Stack. Yes, because when he read those lines, he was just reading it like a normal person, not like Elionette. So Jerry had to follow him around the, the stage while the cinematographer was lighting the set. And he was doing, you know, he, Jerry was doing John Biner, doing Robert Stack. Were you approached to do the sequel for Airplane 2? Yes. Yes. They, they did, they wanted us to do it. At first, you know, we didn't want, we didn't want to do any more airplane jokes. We couldn't think of any more airplane jokes. <laughs> yeah. We couldn't think of, yeah. If you think of it, airplane makes a certain point, but you don't need to make the point twice. But we actually did come up with an idea and it was, uh, you know, the couple flies down the plane and Bob, want, uh, they're going to get uh, married. And so he takes her home to meet his family and it's the Coralio, the Godfather. Then we would do, we wouldn't, it would be airplane too, but it wouldn't even be about an airplane. The studio loved the idea, but then I guess they went to Francis Ford Coppola, who actually did the two greatest movies ever made. And he, he, he I think he, he wanted to still do a Godfather three. So everybody would have been better off had we actually done it. We couldn't Napoli. Well, you're kind of presaging uh, Mafia, or Jane Austen's Mafia, as I know it by. Years later. Yes, years later. How does Police Squad come about? I think we were looking for something to do after Airplane, some kind of follow-up. This was going to do Airplane 2. And there was this old uh, TV series called M Squad. Black and white, Lee Marvin, 1958. And... We thought, why don't we do, you know, why don't we redo that, like, with Zero Hour? It was the Zero Hour, half-hour captions in the 50s. So, and we thought Leslie Nielsen would be perfect for it, and so that's how that happened. And the other thing is, we couldn't figure out a, a whole movie to do. You know, an hour and a half, and there was nothing, we couldn't find a movie, the equivalent of Zero Hour, to spoof. So we kind of downgraded and said, well, we'll do this kind of half-hour TV show. See how that goes. I've watched some of those M Squad episodes, and oh, you yeah, like especially the the one from the uh, the very first episode of Police Squad, and just to see that Sally Decker character and how that was played out. I mean, again, brilliant, brilliant stuff. I mean, the 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 thing is that they always say you know, it was too funny for TV, and I totally agree i mean it it just it was so darn good i mean but when did you guys realize that you you had a very short shelf life when it came to police squad that it wasn't going to last for i mean how many episodes did they even order of it they ordered six and they screened four and each after each episode the ratings went down like the first episode was pretty good and then it it kept declining so they canceled and they played them all out of order as well, or at least a couple episodes out of order. I don't remember that. I don't remember. I want to say five was played when two was supposed to be played. I mean, it was just really screwy. And that screw does, screws up two of your great jokes in there, the garbage cans and then the uh, epilogue with all of the criminals that they've apprehended. 
That's right. Wow. Yeah, if they left me would say, you'll be going to the Stateville prison along with Sally Decker and, the, and he name all the other criminals from the other shows. I mean, there are several explanations. You had to watch the TV too closely. Uh, I think Tony Demopoulos, or somebody told us also, that in uh, these half-hour comedies that sustain, you really lock into identify with a character. And of course, all of our characters were just cartoons, even Leslie. So maybe that's why it didn't work. But deep down inside, we weren't that disappointed when we got canceled. It's really a lot of work to do a half-hour show every week. You know, you have to do it writing, editing, doesn't. And onto the set, induce the slope. And we're not used to working that hard. Oh, we couldn't, we could never sustain that kind of load. So we're, and then, and then, uh, Tony Thomopoulos wanted us to, uh, well, with him, try to get us to put on the last track. And, you know, we weren't, we kind of knew that he was right, but he, but we couldn't put it on a laugh track. Cause it's like, it's not, the show isn't supposed to be funny. So it, it was, uh, we did sympathize with him, uh, but it just wasn't right for TV. And of course, it had the happiest of endings because it wound up in Naked Gun. That's right. I know you guys wrote and directed the first episode of Police Squad. When it came to the subsequent ones, you had you know a couple pairs or or triplets, I suppose, of writers and different directors. How much input did you have when it came to their stories? I mean, did you have like a, a Bible, a show Bible for that? Did you have a very solid showrunner for the show that you, so you knew it was in good hands? I think Pat Proft was the uh, head writer. I don't remember that we had a Bible or knew what one was at the time for the show. I don't think there was a showrunner. Maybe. I don't remember. The there was, yeah. Were we the showrunner? We may have been the showrunner. Yeah. I do have to ask one more question about Police Squad, which was uh, around the story of uh, John Belushi being in one of the opening, one of the opening deaths. Is that true? Yeah, it's true. And he came in one time. Here, this is true. He came in and we were talking about how he wanted to die. And he said, the way I want to die, you know, because we killed a celebrity at the beginning, the way he wanted to die was to tie himself up and shoot up. And we of course said you can't do we can't do that. So we wound up tying a, a, a big stone to his feet, to his and dropping him to a swimming pool through the lens of a camera. So first you see the the rock or whatever, and then you see his feet, and then you see it's John Belushi drowning. But he died before we could air that on the set. He you know the divers were supposed to then you know get him up to the surface so he could get air. But I guess there was a little hitch. They didn't get him up exactly on time, and he was he was kind of choking. He was king and, you know, spitting out water. And, and But he, he was okay. And he said, I'm okay. I'm okay. And so, and so, uh, <laughs> so we all started saying, Belushi had, was best remembered for his work on Saturday Night Live. Later, he did movies, you know, we, we were telling him the, his own obituary. And it was just a couple of months before he actually died. Oh, man, yeah. oh, man. 
So you ended up shooting top secret over at Pinewood. Why Pinewood? Why was that made there rather than California? Money. The exchange rate back then was very favorable and we could do it. And it will, and by the way, that wound up just being a huge blessing. I mean, spending a year in London and working with that crew. I mean, most of the crew had worked on uh, uh, Bond movies. I mean, they were really talented. And it, was a, it wound up being, even though the movie didn't work, it was a great place to shoot it. Hey, you guys are really down on the film when it comes to your audio commentary. Why Why do you say it doesn't work? I mean, for me, it's one of my favorite films. So, But I know there's that always, you know, the outsider looking in. But what is it for you guys? Why does it not work for you? The main thing is that we didn't give Val Kilmer a character arc. That was, I mean, you know, we kind of joked that the, we didn't put a plot, but there was a plot. It was a definite plot. It's just that we didn't give Val Kilmer a specific character arc. He didn't, and that's so important that he's got to have something intrinsically wrong that he's got to solve. He he had no character. He was just a guy. Well, and not only was he a, a guy, but he was kind of a jerk. I mean, he was kind of a rock and roll star guy at the beginning. In the middle, he was a arrogant rock and roll star guy. And at the end, arrogant. He never changed. And of course, what Dave and Jerry and I react to is the didn't get good reviews and didn't do well at the box office. So our reaction is grounded in reality. But it has the best joke of any movie we've ever done, I think. It's just like the jokes are, are great. So, uh, and probably more jokes than Airplane. But it, it's a lot like, you know, the Marx Brothers did a movie called Duck Soup, which had more jokes than Night at the Opera, yet Duck Soup flopped and Night at the Opera was a huge hit. Because it had, uh, you know, good character arts. And I think the other thing that we really beat ourselves up about 30 years later, or whatever, 40, is that right in front of us was this why airplane worked. And in largely, yes, the Joker Goodner, but it had a rock-solid three-act story. So people were, were stuck with the story. And we didn't take that lesson from airplane. We saw, we wrote it, we made airplane. We saw how successful it was and everything. But we failed to realize for years that a lot of that success had to do with this Arthur Haley's story, his character heart and stuff. So part of the reason we beat ourselves up is that we didn't, we didn't learn that lesson at the time. We thought, oh, wow, we're so cool. We can just do jokes for an hour and a half, and the movie will be a success. The way that you kind of hung jokes on Zero Hour, were there any particular films that were the inspiration? I mean, obviously, you've got Blue Lagoon and things like that, but any Elvis films or spy films that you wanted to hang the jokes on for Top Secret? Oh, there, there were dozens. We watched a lot of, uh, you know, the, the those black and white World War II spy movies that were made during the war. And, and then there was, you know, then we threw in other spoofs along the way. And, the, and the, you know, the plot was kind of an amalgamation of, of those basic plots of those World War II spy movies. The hero is dropped behind 
enemy lines uh links up with the french resistance that was a theme of a lot of the movies that we watched and and the other lesson that we didn't learn from airplane is that if you're going to do a parody you need to find a single genre to try to merge you know world war ii movies and elvis presley movies that just dissipates the the focus and if you look at any successful parody the ones we worked on other people they they take dead aim at a single genre and then you can do little offshoots of making fun of this movie or that but it's really a parody of a single genre and and it has to be uh grounded in reality yeah another way yeah there wasn't much real about top secret it was you know, I mean, Val Kilmer in his documentary said he, he's still trying to figure out what the movie was about. Well, obviously, it's a, you know, Dr. Paul Flamand has to be saved. So, <laughs> Right, right. No, I Actually, the plot made a lot of sense, but, you know, he just, but it wasn't, it wasn't a, uh, the bad guys weren't East German communist soldiers. They were World War II Nazi soldiers. And Nick Rivers was from, 1957 so i don't know it, it was he was it played some kind of elvis character with with the audience being you know for the beatles the beatles audience right we showed those extras videos of the beatles audience and those girls did individual characters from those videos from those beatles audience can you tell me a little bit about the songs because i find it an interesting mix of of pre-existing with your tutti fruities and then some very great original songs, especially, of course, the skeet shooting, skeet surfing. Sorry. So here's the origin of skeet surfing. Here we can talk. When we were doing publicity for Airplane, we would, Dave and Terry and I had never, we weren't used to doing that stuff. And you basically do one interview after another after another for a couple months. And there's like a handful of questions any interviewer will ask. So we just said it to have a contest among the three of us to see who could get the biggest lie printed from an interview. And so we would make up all this stuff during the interviews. And one of them, somebody asked, well, what do you guys do back in Southern California? And we said, well, we do ski surfing. And we made up ski surfing for, to, and it got printed in some, you know, country or somewhere. Anyway, so that was the origin. Of, of skeet surfing. And I think if we got to the other music, we just wanted to come close to those 50s songs, right, David? Yeah, it was 50s and 60s, you know, Spotify Beatles and Elvis tunes. And, uh, and we, we, there were uh, different writers who wrote each song. And some of them, I, I some of them actually were writers from the 50s that you had written popular songs in the 50s and 60s. That's right. Uh, uh, a couple of the writers were from the band The Turtles. Right. And I think we thought, well, these would be big hits and the movie would, uh, you know, people would stuff the theater. And then the score itself, the Maurice Jarre score itself and having like the, the Hillary theme and everything, it's really well made. Right. It was wonderful. Were there any challenges of making this in England versus making it in the U.S.? I know you said that the prices were a lot better, but were there any, you know, any downside to it? We realized like, in America, everything is about money. You can buy anything for money. And in 
uh, at Pinewood, if you wanted to go overtime, you couldn't just say, okay, we're going overtime. You'll be paid, you know, three times scale or whatever. And it, the crew votes if they wanted, if they want to work overtime. And usually they didn't. Yeah, usually they didn't. The, the other kind of wonderful thing about shooting in, in London is we were only allowed to have one American actor. It was Val. And we had to cast the whole rest of the movie in London. So we got, you know, uh, uh, what's his name? Harry Ditson. The guy who was the, uh, uh, he was the butler uh, on that series. I forgot his name. And the acting, and I, I remember act, uh, casting sessions in London. And in London, actors act. I mean, it, oh, I mean they were they're really good. Yeah. There's a big theater community. So actors, are, it's not as so in, in L.A., I don't know. I guess actors have to go to workshops and stuff. But in London, they had, and they were always busy. So the quality of acting during the tryouts was just, we were blown away during the auditions. Really, really good actors. And I think there were some American actors there, but they, they happened to live there. So they were eligible to be in the movie. Thought there was some. Some of them were Americans. Jeremy Kemp, what a face and what a great character. He was a fish in water with that character too. He had a good character arc. Started out really evil, and he ended up really evil. Really surprising. What was it like working with uh, Val Kilmer? This was his first feature film. Val was great. He just he did a great job, and we had fun with him. But you know, sometimes I think. That <laughs> this is only after like you know decades and decades later you know we realized that you know he was a guy trained at Juilliard and we, he didn't have a character. They had the same problem Lloyd Bridges did. Like who am I? What's going on? Am I supposed? You know he's a natural actor. He's an actual actor. So I think you know Val struggled a little bit with it. And I, I think we probably interpreted that as moodiness or something, but decades and decades later, we, I think we accept some responsibility for it. During for his audition, most of the guys who came in auditioned for that part, they, like most people, they came in and read their lines or whatnot. Val dressed like Elvis. He learned an Elvis song, and he played the Elvis song and danced to it as his audition. Yeah, it was really close. Like you said, he doesn't have that arc, but I just want to like him. I guess it's just that natural affability. Yeah. He's very likable. He really, it, yeah. it, no, that's true. So you had police squad, which for all intents and purposes was a failure. And I'm sorry to use such a strong word, but the network was not supporting you at all. You had top secret, which doesn't do well at the box office, doesn't get the reviews. Do you guys think that that's it? Or do you regroup and say, we have to try something different? After Top Secret, we thought, I mean, we didn't realize yet what the real story was with Top Secret. So we thought, well, maybe people didn't want spoof anymore. So I think that's why Rufo's people had a certain attraction for us. But I think we wanted to do a movie that was a buff story. But I think we never lost faith that we could still do movies. And we, we still wanted to do movies. How much influence did you have on the story of Ruthless People? Because uh, this is the first time 
that you're directing something that you didn't write, if memory serves. We had very little influence. The story, I mean, Dale just wrote a wonderful farce script, and there wasn't, I don't think we had, we worked on the script and did a little fine-tuning, but it's really, if you just stand back and look at the script and follow the story, it's wonderful farce. And it was neither, it, it just didn't need that much work, you know, uh, yet. And if you were to ask Dale, even back then or today, he wasn't particularly thrilled with the way we directed it. Because, you know, we made Danny and Bet and everybody, the whole story, very big and broad, and he had something much more subtle in mind. So he stopped coming to the set about halfway through the movie. I remember seeing that in the theater and the audience ate it up. It was so good. I think we did it right. Uh, it may have not have been exactly what Dale had envisioned, but, uh, and I think we, you know, we did add the whole, that videotape plot where, uh, of course, Dale broke where they, they watched the videotapes. He wound up eating a little bit of humble pie because he hadn't directed at that point by himself. So, and then when he did, he got a little bit more of an idea of all that's involved. That's right. Yeah. But he had a very successful career after that. We run into him all the time. And, uh, you know, we, didn't we, there was a showing of Rufus people somewhere and he was, he did the Q and A with us. He lives pretty close by and up until a couple of years, he's a big front yard in his house and. And up until a couple of years ago, he had a big sign on his front door that said, fuck Trump. <laughs> so everybody walking by, you know, open street. When it came to, to The Naked Gun, I've got a couple of questions about that because, David, your name is the director on that one, but yet it's the, the team as the writers. And then Jim, same year, I think, you are directing, is it Welcome Home, Roxy Carmichael, if memory serves? Is that why it's not the three of you as directors, or did you just decide, like, we're going to divvy up this work a little differently? What What's the story behind that? I kind of took a point on the whole Naked Gun thing. We all wrote it together, uh, Jerry, Jim, and Pat Proft, and me. And I was always going to direct it myself. And I thought Jim was doing big business at the time. Big business, that's what it is. I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, after... You know, Ruthless People was the only, as you mentioned, was the only script that we directed together, but we hadn't written. It was a completely different vibe. You know, for the parodies that we had done, we were all very much on the same page and they had a very similar vision, but with Ruthless People, it was a whole different thing. And I remember shortly after Ruthless People, I went out to lunch with Jerry and he said, I, I don't want to do this anymore. I wanna I wanna work on my own. Yeah, the direct quote was I'm gonna see how how high I can fly on my own. And which made all the sense in the world. I mean, there's no hostility or anything. And so that's when we started to branch out more on our own. And I think Jerry's first deal out of the box was uh, ghost. Not a bad way to start off. Not a bad way to start. Was it Naked Gun two and a half? You know, from the director of the brother of the brother of the director of Ghost. Yes, yes, yes. brother, director of Ghost. Well, yeah. <laughs> great. 
when I saw Ghost, I called Jerry right away, and I said, "Well, of course, I, I love the movie, but I said, you know that uh, that clay modeling scene, we can we could spoof that, you know, we could do that in two and a half." And there there it was. It started off just the trailer, and then you know I put it in the in the actual movie. Why did you decide to go back to? the files of police squad, what brought that about? Or did you just say, Hey, this was a really good thing. And we got the shaft from the network. I don't even think we thought that we got the shaft from the network. It, it's just that it worked on TV, but it was funny. It was funny enough so that, and then by that time, I think we realized that top secret didn't work because of plot and character. So the thinking was that if we could do police squad as a movie, if we paid attention to the lead character's art. And that's what we did when we all wrote it. In my recollection is the part of the, from the pile, files of Police Squad tag is that it was in part marketing because uh, Police Squad did have a, a pretty big following even back then. And we wanted to make sure people knew what Naked Gun was about. So and part of that was just marketing. And I might say, and that when we went to Paramount to pitch Police Squad, it was like the single easiest pitch. You mean when we went to pitch Naked Gun? I'm sorry, yeah, uh, Naked Gun. There's a guy named yeah. Fuso who ran the studio back then. And we went to the commissary at Paramount, and we sat down and said, we're thinking about doing a movie based on police squad. That was it. It was so simple. And to his credit, God bless him, you know, he saw that. I think Naked Gun Two and a Half is one of the few sequels that actually made more money than the original one did. Do you think that it was just that you had to reintroduce these characters in the first one and then people were just waiting for the second one? I mean, they, they enjoyed the first one so much, I guess. They wanted to be there for like you have said, David, by then, Leslie was a movie star. We made Airplane. He wasn't really a movie. And Naked Gun, oh yeah, there's the guy from, but by the, after the first Naked Gun, Leslie was a movie star. He was a movie star, yeah. The third movie. What happened with that? Why didn't you direct that one, David? I wasn't interested in it anymore. Uh, you know, I wanted to, wanted to do another movie. And we hired a you know, an, another director to do it. And, uh, that's, that's what happened. You know, you've got the, the book on the making of airplane coming out. What else are you guys working on these days? If anything, I have two scripts that I've completed that, you know, one is, you know, financed if we get a star. So we're, you know, we're working on getting a, excuse me, a lead actor for it. And, uh, cause that, that'll only take three or four more years. I think and we will have that done. And then, you know, because we're, that's what, that's what I'm working on. And Jerry is working as I think for almost the last 10 years has been working maybe seven on a Broadway musical. And he's been fighting that fight. And I think maybe they're going to get a chance to preview it in London. And I've spent really the last almost 30 years um, working on a non Natural Profit Foundation that advocates for diabetes for it. Oh, is that the whole ketogenic thing that you're doing? Yes. 
Yeah. And that's been a whole completely different year. Literally all those years in the movie business, I think my whole life, our whole life, were about finding things to laugh at. Then I got into this thing. My kid got really sick, and I haven't made a joke about that in 30 years. You guys have been friends and working together for, what, over 50 years now. Do you still hang out on a pretty regular basis? During the football season, yes. <laughs> we're, we're all here at my house watching the Packer game. And yeah, yeah. So yeah, we do hang out, you know, parties and, you know, we just get together and we're, we're, we're in touch all the time. And actually, this season has been a lot more time to talk at the Packer games because they sucked. Mr. Abrams, Mr. Zucker, I, I really, I don't tend to do this. I don't tend to gush, but I have to tell you, I'm, I'm just, I'm so thrilled that I was able to talk to you today. This has been fantastic. I've been such a fan of your work for so many years. This is, has really, truly been wonderful. Great. Oh, cool. thank you. Our pleasure. Sure. Yeah, we've had fun. Are you lonesome tonight? Is your kitchen a sight? Is your wardrobe all run down and bare? Is your lipstick all smeared? Are your stockings not sheer? Do they make your legs show all your hair? Do the tears on your Short out the blanket and make the sheets burn. Is your heart filled with pain? Will you come back again? Shop at Macy's and love me tonight. All right, guys, we're back and we were talking about top secret. And I think we covered a lot of this. I was hoping to kind of put this in the place of the ZAZ canon. I think we did a pretty good job with it. But having sat through airplane now, all the police squads, all the naked guns, and we talked a little bit at the very beginning as far as where we would put this in the Pantheon. But I just kind of want to get some last thoughts from us as we've gone on this whole journey it's a journey I wouldn't mind continuing someday if we ever want to branch off into like Zuckerville and Abrams films, those kind of things. But I don't know. Not not this show. Not not uh, from the files of Police Squad. I think we put the capstone on that one. So until just, the uh, reboot curious. comes out, yeah, oh, yeah. Shit, we are. We're gonna have to do a trailer <laughs> reaction video too. Yeah. Ah. yeah. Oh my. Oh whoa. Whoa. Yeah, man. That's crazy. Remember that callback? Whoa. OJ's in the movie. I'm getting my face ready for the thumbnail. <laughs> I mean, if they don't have OJ Simpson in the reboot, they're missing out on an opportunity to make all kinds of jokes, right? Hey, he's free, right? Oh, so God. Oh, Look he's at free. Kato Kalen is Nordberg. <laughs> yeah, right. He's home for you. You know, I'm really glad we watched all of these these movies together and 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 TV shows because to get to this point 
it kind of all coalesced while watching Top Secret, as it were. Like, this will probably be the one that I remember out of everything that we've watched, not only because it's the only thing I hadn't seen, but it's the thing I think I ultimately enjoyed the most, even more so than Airplane, which I, like you said, Mark, like, Airplane, I would say this much, this might be my favorite thing that they've done, all three of them, but I can 100% understand why Airplane is the better movie and more important movie, but this might be, having watched it twice now and wanting to watch it a third time, this might be my favorite current favorite thing that i've seen of theirs and this is i think for me i'll remember because i even remember some of this movie having not seen it in over 30 years peter cushing eyeball i mean that's you know the phone a lot of the sight gags i can recall from the very first times i've watched it it's like airplane where those things will settle with me i can barely remember 90 percent of the naked gun films that we've watched fairly recently like i can't remember what one had the dance scene that it is sort of a callback to this movie i don't know if it's that's in one two or three because they all sort of mix together i think i still prefer airplane and i do have a soft spot for a kentucky fried movie i really enjoy that i don't watch it very often but a lot of times when i want to watch a skit-like movie like that, it will be Kentucky Fried Movie. Above, you know, like Groove Tube or some of the other ones that came out around that same time. You know, I know they didn't direct that one, but still, like, I hold that one pretty high up on the list, too. This, for what we've watched, this is definitely second only to Airplane and then Police Squad. Some of the episodes of Police Squad would take up you know, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth, and then on down to Naked Gun. The Locksmith episode. That and the the pilot, the the first episode, those two are probably my favorites of the the police squads. And I I used to think that I loved all of them and I think I like all of them, but I think some are definitely more successful than others. There are a few that I love, few that I would take home to meet my mother. I still think that first Naked Gun is is really good though. It has some of the I mean it has some of the best gags and it's and it has some of the best repurposed versions of the gags too in all of the things that we've seen but it also has some of the best original sequences like in Vincent Ludwig's apartment you know assault with a concrete dildo frank like all of all of that everything in the third act of the movie is about as solid as you would hope for out of a comedy film of of that ilk but you know i've never seen kentucky fried movie that's on the short list of things to watch now because of having done this with y'all. But the flavor of all of this is really the same, though. It's vanilla, French vanilla, old style vanilla, homemade vanilla. Like it's all I'm not saying it's vanilla as in it's plain, but I'm just more speaking to the idea that you can have similar flavors of the same base idea. And I think that jokes every five seconds constantly, regardless of what it is, is really I mean, the base idea here is just bombard the audience with jokes. And that is always the case. That is never not the case in any of these. That is the through line. If there is any through line, it's bombarding you with jokes. And there are not very many things, if anything, other than these kinds of movies that are really successful with that base premise of constant joke bombardment. Because we've seen what it looks like with Leslie Nielsen later in his career where people would go, hey. I've seen them do that with Leslie Nielsen. I can do that. And it's like, no, you cannot. 
because ZAZ could barely even do it later on with him as well. And other than those two, the askance look and the direct fourth wall breaking, there is zero mugging in this movie. No one, which is much appreciated. No one pays attention to the gag. And it just seemed like they abandoned that pretty much after this film. And I love that in this movie. Everybody is the straight man. I love that. It's, it's, I mean, again, that, that's the other thing that I wish I could say was a through line in ZAZ stuff. But like you just said, Mark, it, it is so not after this point. I mean, again, it's a little, it is a little bit in the police squad show. But they drop it pretty quickly there, too, because I guess it gets boring to have your characters not acknowledge the weird things that are going on. Yeah, which I would disagree with. I don't know what push away from it was. I would be curious to hear if they've ever addressed that anywhere, because it's a very conscious choice to go away from the straight man is the purpose of the piece and everything else happening around him is the comedy. They really drop that. And I it's a, it's a shame. It is. Yeah. This for me is where things take a turn, you know, after this is what I'd say. So I'm all about, you know, I already said my, my favorites of their stuff. And Chris, I can't wait for you to see Kentucky Fried movie because there's actually a call out to Nebraska in the movie. One of my favorite lines of the entire film. Big Jim, former tight end for the Kansas City Chiefs, is outfitted with various whips, chains, and a sexual appetite that will knock your socks off. Big Jim has satisfied women throughout the world, and the capital of Nebraska is Lincoln. We in this little uh, landlocked state get a shout-out. It's an oddly specific joke as using your high school's anthem for the East or the West German national anthem. It's as oddly specific a joke as that. Yeah, East German, yeah. And the... The East German uh, Olympic. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, that was a big, oh. that, you know, when that joke comes up, I'm like, I remember those days because their track and field team and their swim teams always got called into question. They got tested. But I'd like to point out that the Russian, <laughs> their estrogen Russian levels. Olympians are still doing it, man. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. It I wasn't... saw that Icarus documentary. Holy shit. Yeah. They're still doing it as recently as like last year. One thing I really wanted to quickly call out here, because I think we talked about this behind the scenes when we were doing the Police Squad series, is we noticed that the poster for Airplane is an airplane with a knot in it. There are posters for Top Secret with a submarine with a knot in it, which I think is supposed to call to Dr. Flamand and the whole submarine that crashes through the wall. And then in was a naked gun. I think the cover page for it was a gun with a knot in it. And it was like this whole thing that they were doing, but then they loved the, the image of the cow with the boots so much that that became the image for top secret. So like, if you go to other countries, that's the image is the, the submarine on the poster. But here in the States, it was always the cow. I had never seen that submarine poster until we started to do this show and that's too bad given that there's a submarine i'm kind of surprised that there wasn't even a singular mention of das boot anywhere other than maybe the cow wearing boots <laughs> das boots i don't know why they dropped those i don't know there's there's some things that they could have just kept doing that i wouldn't have complained about like keep those through lines but the cow with the boots on is funny it's pretty it's pretty iconic Come on. although <laughs> it's yeah. a great image i would have loved to see that not thing continue through all those 
Now, it's funnier to have Frank Drebin with his foot over his head. <laughs> <laughs> that's the Shooting that's the really like funny this. thing. Well, thank you so much, gentlemen. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Chris, coming by to talk about Top Secret, kind of putting that final uh, note on our whole series, which is available, as we said, over at weirdingwaymedia.com from the files of Police Squad in color. So, Mark, if people want to hear more of your dulcet tones, where should they go? You can listen to me on three different shows currently. The aforementioned From the Files of Police Squad in Color over there on weirdingwaymedia.com. And I have two other shows. One is a is called Cambridge and with Sean, and it's me and my friend Ronald Zurigian talking about childhood obsessions that kind of shaped who we are today as adults. And that is a monthly show. And the first episode is out. The second one will probably be out when this is out. And I think we were we are releasing them the first Tuesday of the month. So you can find that as well at wordingwaymedia.com. And then my main show is Wake Up Heavy Recollections of Horror, where I talk about mostly horror films. And Mike and Chris have been guests numerous times on that as well as some other folks and a lot of times it's just me or me and my daughter chatting about scary movies and you can find that at wordingwaymedia.com or at wakeupheavy.com or anywhere you listen to podcasts and chris how about yourself well i'm gonna echo everything mark said you can find the stuff that i work on at wordingwaymedia.com but as one of the two founders of the network it would not be a it would not be a good idea to plug my own show, so I'll take an opportunity to plug some other shows like Susan Lambert Haddam's 80s TV Ladies, which talks about TV shows from the 80s that had female leads, or a brand new show on the network, Noise Junkies, which is hosted by Mondo Heather's Heather Drain, uh, Night Mr. Walter's HP, and everybody's irascible fellow Father Malone of many podcasts hosting opportunities. The three of them talking about music, so... Those are all things you can find at Weirding Way Media, along with the stuff that I work on. But come on, you want to hear what other people have to say, not me. Well, and if you want to hear more what I have to say, check out all of my stuff also over at WeirdingWayMedia.com, where Chris and I also talk about Columbo. We used to talk about Kolchak. We used to talk about, I think there are still episodes coming out of Twilight Zone 85. We talk about Night Gallery now, all of those shows over at weirdingwaymedia.com. Barty Miller. Thank you, everybody. Our, oh, uh, yes. And Barty Miller. And Barty Miller. <laughs> we love our 70s Breaking TV and show. Bass. Jesus Christ. I wasn't going to list all of them. <laughs> oh. It was just but, a flavor. But, but Mark just, was. Just a little flavor. Just yeah, to... <laughs> I need to listen to that new music podcast. That sounds great. Yeah, he needs, I, he needs. Mark wants you to give away all thirty-one right here. All, all thirty-one flavors. flavors. Yeah, do the police squad bit, and at the end, go through the whole <laughs> fucking list, and then your last one yeah. is and and the Sally Decker. Yeah, right. yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you guys for being on the show. Thanks everybody for listening. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit Patreon.com/slash Projection Booth. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
Be double barrel, wish they all could be double barrel guns. 